Everybody, 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 welcome to another episode of the Break the Rules live stream. Lef Poliakov at Lefpo coming at you all the way live. We've got Giovanni Penichetti in the house, and we have the Chad. Sweet! We have the Chad, Chad Haig versus the Virgin Ivory Tower dwelling uh, academia <laughs> person. So, Chad, you have you are off the reservation you are living literally. in a, literally you are living in a Kerala, India with your wonderful wife and uh, <laughs> you are living the dream right now. I mean, I don't know if it is a dream. All I could say is that there are many people who are out there that are sitting in some academic cubicle or on some boring Zoom conversation, not like the one on Break the Rules, and they wish they could pull <laughs> off a move like you did. So anyway, Chad, please buy this guy's books. I am a huge yeah, fan. I've been listening to your lectures nonstop. I was picking fruits a couple of days oh, ago, shit. and I was listening to uh, your uh, your lecture <laughs> on uh, Plato and Aristotle and Ted Kaczynski, and uh, I finished it off with your lecture on David Icke. So that was a very interesting nice. one as well. We are going to get into all of it, my friend, and buy his book, Social Justice Madness. The latter philosophy of Penti Lincola, hermeneutical death, the technological destruction of subjectivity, and so on and so forth. Being anyway, in oil, his magnum opus. Yes, we're gonna get into that too. No worries about that. I've been, so, I this has been a pleasure. I mean, I've been following Chad Higg literally since like 2013, when his first YouTube channel, Chad African, I discovered you through Corey Anton, and uh, you what you left, you left academia but you came back in a big way. You immediately pumped out the content. Just, I, I truly think, oh man, I'm getting goosebumps right now because you are truly a visionary in every sense of the word and you have blazed your own trail. And I'm so, I commend you for that. As a fellow uh, failed academic, I, 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 I applaud you, my friend. So, so, so Chad, Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you tell us uh, how you get started with philosophy in the first place and what led you to where you are now? Um, yeah, thank you so much for this opportunity um, to have this discussion with you. Um, I guess the way that I got into philosophy was um, actually through religion, of all things. Um, I remember um, having a lot of theological debates um, with uh, you know my friends when I was growing up in rural Southern Colorado near um, Colorado Springs, which is called the Evangelical Vatican. So um, mm. I remember having a lot of debates as at that time a Roman Catholic with you know Southern Baptist or Pentecostal um, First Assembly of God Nazarene, all kinds of different denominations, and um, I realized that the religious questions were really philosophical um, discussion um, in disguise, and for that reason I got into philosophy. And the irony is, the more I got into philosophy, the more <laughs> I got away from the religion. Um, eventually, by the time that I was, you know, Chad African in say 2012, either um, arguing from the from the other perspective, um, you know, the the secularist uh, one that, um, quite frankly, I had to adapt being in graduate school. Um, but it was interesting how after I left grad school um, and YouTube and social media, um, when I was free to um, read anything I wanted or listen to anybody I wanted to listen to with nobody knowing that I was doing it, I actually um, went back to the religious stuff. Um, I was listening to, say, uh, fundamentalist uh, pastors on the radio in, in Denver. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> people like Stephen Anderson, even on YouTube. Oh, God. So, um, 
<laughs> well, he's a, he's a very intelligent man. Regardless, I'm oh, not yeah. saying one way or the other regarding his opinions, but he's a very intelligent person, and he's actually mm. really done his homework regarding knowing what the Bible says. Yeah, I think I I dis obviously as a Catholic, I disagree with his theology, especially his opinions on Mary. Mm. But oh, by the way, Gio, we have oh. to adjust the audio, so you got to get your microphone louder because Chad's microphone, like the true Chad, oh there you go, is, yeah, I boosted, is, uh, yeah, it's there very, you go. it's very loud in comparison. Um, and by the so, way, here is a picture of Steven Anderson. For those who do not know uh, yeah. who we are, uh, who we are talking about here, he those F slurs. <laughs> he kind of looks like that actor who everybody on uh, this fear of Twitter likes a lot, uh, Ryan Gosling. Oh doesn't yeah, he, a little bit. Doesn't little he kind of look like Ryan? But uh, anyway, what would you say out of all the uh, philosophical uh, adventures that you've gone on uh, recently? Like you've covered. Um, uh, you've covered, I mean, so many, you know, like I said before, Plato, Aristotle, you covered, uh, uh, that guy that Karl Popper hates. What's his name? Uh, Gio, you know who I'm talking about right now. I'm just blanking there's many, out. Well, yeah, there's many of them. Uh, specifically, uh, well, the phenomenology of spirit, Hegel, Hegel, that's, Hegel. you covered <laughs> yeah. so many lectures on Hegel and you had a video recently where you were wearing the Dexter's laboratory shirt, which is an amazing shirt, by the way, <laughs> uh, where you were talking about 1 million lectures. And I'm not particularly sure what you meant by that. Like what is 1 million lectures? <laughs> now, 1 million lectures is the number of views on YouTube, um, which with all three channels combined, I, I had the first channel all the way back in 2011, which was called um, the Anime Lit Theorist. <laughs> that might surprise most people. The, the first philosophy channel was supposed to be an analysis of anime using critical theory. Um, it didn't actually get very far. I don't think I ever actually did the analysis of the anime. I was just talking about Cohen, Derrida, people like that. Um, but all three channels combined, it's easily one million views and um in that live stream i was trying to emphasize that even if you had been given the ultimate opportunity in the academic industry as one of my professors um, um actually didn't get his phd in the 1970s he was abd um he wrote his dissertation but he was um they say so much of a perfectionist that he was never able to bring himself to actually submit it and do the defense but it didn't matter because in 1975 you could become a fully tenured professor um just being abd and he taught for about 45 years, uh, literally until he died um, last year. And I crunched the numbers, even the guy who'd been given the ultimate opportunity, which could never have been done any time before or after, okay, um, 45 years, um, fully tenured professor, he taught about 10,000 people in his entire life. Okay. Mm. And if you just do a numerical comparison of 10,000 and 1 million, obviously, that's not you know, 1 million different people. Some of, there are, some of them are um, subscribers who watch a number of different, different videos, but um, it's safe to say that, um, you know, this, this opportunity on which YouTube ironically has given me as somebody who is, um, I guess, uh, made himself um, into the uh, anti-technological philosophy, like that is my identity. Um, it's ironic that YouTube of all things has given me an opportunity, which um, even if you were to try to go through the academic industry today, um, it just numerically wouldn't even be possible, I think, mm -hmm. to, to equal what we already have here on YouTube. Oh, yeah. well, one of the uh, things that you were talking about in, uh, let's say, uh, whether we're talking about Ted Kaczynski or whether we're talking about uh, David Icke or uh, one of my favorites, Rudolf Steiner, those lectures uh, were amazing. One of the things that I keep noticing is this uh, advent of technology with Rudolf Steiner talking about this uh, aramonic essence 
uh, Ariman, as in from the uh, Zoroastrianism, you know, the bad guy of Zoroastrianism, this idea of having people be controlled and having people succumb to a certain hive mind. I do see the internet as, even though it is uh, partly doing that as well, would you say that it's also freeing people up versus them having uh, just the television to... Uh, have a certain idea of what's going on in the world. So in your case, would you say that you can use this technology for uh, freeing people's minds as opposed to uh, enslaving? <laughs> um, I'll be perfectly honest with you, a bit of that cut out, uh, but um, if I understand the, the question correctly, um, comparing the internet with television, um, I think it was Styx himself who mentioned in um, a 2016 short book called um, Occult Memetics, Reality Manipulation, that um, social media does offer up a certain technological window of opportunity, which simply does not exist in um, television because not everybody owns a cable TV um, channel, right? Um, it's it's a fa fairly small number of people who happen to own a network like, say, Fox News or CNN, right? Um, and really, if you appear on those channels, you're not allowed to just express yourself um, spontaneously. There is um, a very clear set of uh, protocols which you have to abide by to be on that um um, network and give the illusion of debate, um, which you know people get sucked into, um, so that they won't do any thinking. And and Sticks's argument was that on social media it's not like that because everybody um, can have uh, multiple social media accounts and they can broadcast and they can actually express themselves because at least in 2016 he still had this um, idea that um, you know social media is unregulated. There's not people going to be you know flagging or or maybe not banning nearly as much and say the time he wrote that before Trump was actually um, elected. Um, so that was the idea in 2016. And I acknowledge that uh, to a certain extent that was true. You make this comparison between cable television and internet at that time. However, um, that was recognized properly as a technical problem. The thing about technology is we have this illusion of perfection at every technical leap. It, it's kind of like um, starting a new phase within Hegel. Um, it's like falling in love. You, you start a new phase within Hegel and you're certain that this time it's really going to, to work out. This is really the one, right? And then you find out the hard way through you know, abstract negation and um, determinate negation that um, it's not quite what you thought it was, but that's okay, it moves you forward. Well, um, it's kind of like that with technology. You have this, every time a new innovation comes out, um, the media praises it as perfection. You look at the way that um, cell phones were thought of, you know, the kind of very primitive, um, you know, um, non-smartphones, like I still use one myself here in India. It's a little $15 Nokia phone, um, which pretty much just make, makes calls and it has an alarm clock, okay? That was praised by the media in say 2005 or something like that um, as perfection. But now we know how primitive it was because um, there were various problems with it, which progressively came to be solved. And I'm sorry about the honking. This is um, something which goes on in India. The, no, you uh, have, the, that's you have the, the best sounds in the background. You have the honking, you've got the roosters going, it's great. <laughs> right. This guy is the fish, the fish truck. He's probably coming to my house right now, actually, because we buy fish from him pretty often. So the, the way this works is um, he um, he honks his horn outside your house. So you'll come out and give him a couple dollars for some fish. Um, so. <laughs> so, so sorry about that. It looks like he's gone to someone else's house now. Um, I, I think I, I think I lost my train of thought. So technology, um, technology is a progression in which, as Jacques will mention, you have this replacement of one 
method by another in which when you get the new method, the former one seems so primitive as not even to be an option anymore. But of course, the same fate will eventually befall the one that now seems to be perfect. And I think the stuff, the thing Sticks was trying to describe in 2016 was precisely one of those problems, which the, the technological system, not even necessarily any smart person within it, but the technological system itself recognized that freedom of expression and that, uh, that democratization of expression in which everybody can have a social media account. They recognize it as a problem. And for the past five years, they've been working nonstop to get rid of it. And I think that that's, that's only going to continue getting worse. That is the true essence of technology. That's the um, thing which it's positively working towards, whereas this freedom of expression is only a temporary bug, which as time goes on, it'll become harder and harder to find any outlets where you can still, you can still um, have that sort of freedom. Mm-hmm. What do you so, think of uh, oh sorry what real quick what do you think of Jason Giorgiani's idea of uh, technology as in the word uh, techne having something to do with this um, with this impulse that's inside of every human being that he refers uh, back to uh, somebody like Prometheus as in we are able to foretell certain things we are able to see into the future and to plan ahead and to construct various things and that is a very special quality that he sees in the positive but would you view that quality as being in the negative or it really depends on uh, how you uh, utilize it well i think that it um, relies on a certain equivocation with the ancient greek term techne um it's it is indeed the word that's transliterated into technology okay with a sort of artificial word we don't really know what that means it's kind of a label for us in which language no longer speaks um as heidegger would say in his later years so we have this label technology but we don't really know what that means we just know in a certain sense what sort of things it can be applied to um but the ancient greek term techne really does not mean anything like what we mean when we say technology it really was in a certain as heidegger says himself it was a way of being at home in a certain um, in the midst of a certain subject matter. So the blacksmith um, is at home in the midst of the subject matter of blacksmithing because he's obviously mm. devoted so many hours of his life, you know, years of his life, whatever. Right. So the Aristotelian view, um, Aristotle talking about te- Aristotle is notoriously difficult to read in translation precisely because <laughs> we're too familiar with the, yeah. the Aristotelian terms. <laughs> Hello. So, uh, uh, yes, I'm sorry. Uh, it is a uh, um, a little bit. Uh, it's pretty good, I think, because it's not monsoon season anymore. Um, uh, but uh, there, it, it breaks up a little bit. Um, but I'll just uh, address real quick um, whether ancient techne, in this sense of a being at home, a human being at home in the midst of a certain subject matter, because another big thing for Aristotle is contrasting techne with thesis. So you have this um, this um, this motion in natural entities, uh, coconut trees can grow, right? And they have this, um, this uh, motion um, because of their hardwired nature, okay? And you have animals, which uh, I guess we would say today by instinct, they know how to hunt, they know how to uh, beavers build dams, things like that. That's fusis. Um, Aristotle specifically meant techne as the opposite of fusis. It's this maybe ability you have to, to do things, um, not on the basis of your hardwired nature or instinct, but rather on the basis of having undergone some sort of specialized training. You had to do the apprenticeship as a blacksmith, for example. Um, and that's precisely what I think modern technology is not. That's what modern technology negates, is this ability for the human 
to actually go through this process of um, building up skills um, to become at home within the midst of a certain subject matter. Um, and instead, technology um, um, does the exact opposite of that. We have automation instead of um, um, humans uh, producing things. Humans producing things is a technical problem. We have to do everything we possibly can to make the village blacksmith extinct. The village blacksmith was still kind of a, a common thing in um, most uh, towns in the American South in say the early 20th century. And there was a guy I think named Alex Beeler who um, was a sort of a, he was like an advertising executive in Atlanta in like the 1960s. But on the weekends, he would drive out to rural towns in Georgia and other states in the South, and he would try to salvage as much of this information on blacksmithing from very old blacksmiths before they literally, um, you know, took the knowledge to the grave with them. And that's something which you you really can't even imagine today, because, mm. um, you know, I can't name a single town really other than maybe Amish country in the United States um, where you still have a village blacksmith. And that's not because the skill is worthless. It's because it was it was competition for the technological system. System, which recognizes any expression of human ability or intelligence, real thinking, we're talking about forbidden philosophy is almost something of a, of a redundancy, because at this point, you're not allowed to do all, all real philosophy is forbidden from the academic industry now, because mm -hmm. the technological system has a perverse incentive to give the illusion that we've never been more intelligent, um, even while um, removing human intelligence itself as a technical problem. If I were to play devil's advocate for a second, I know, Gio, you got a question that is burning to be uh, asked, but if I were to play devil's advocate and uh, say that uh, when it comes to the blacksmiths, like uh, Styx, uh, going back to him, always talks about how there is a reason certain things are the way they are in terms of uh, industrial growth because of efficiency, it would be more efficient to have this big factory where you have all these machines that do things that blacksmiths used to do, which took a lot longer time. And if we compare, let's say, how often people would use a certain machine uh, or a certain tool that the blacksmith would create versus this automated process, if it really doesn't make that much of a difference, who cares? Let's just put this factory in there. It's faster. What would you say to that argument? Um, I'll be perfectly honest with you. A little bit of that was breaking up, but um, I think that the question of whether, um, you know, large factories are inevitable historically simply because they're more efficient. Well, that begs the question, what does efficient actually mean? We have, yeah, once again, a case here. Right. We have a case here in which we're, we, we know what things that label is supposed to be applied to, but we don't know what it's actually saying at the level of language speaking. And um, Dmitry Orlov, who, by the way, was a professional engineer um, in industry during his working um, years, um, mentioned in one of his books that efficient simply means that it has to run at full near full capacity all the time where it breaks down. Um, the, and it, the opposite of an efficient system is um, a, I forgot the exact word he uses, but it's a resilient system, I think was his exact word. Um, like a house cat, a house cat is the exact opposite of an efficient system. It does not spend all of its time running on full capacity hunting. It spends a lot of time not at full capacity, but that's exactly what makes it resilient enough to um, withstand certain variations um, in inputs of various things and survive. The industrial mm -hmm. system right now appears to be um, showing in real time what Dmitry Orlov 
predicted on a theoretical level, say 12, 13 years ago, whenever he wrote this book, he mentioned that if you have any disruption within um, the inputs to the industrial system, you'll start to see things break down. And I don't see it as much here in India, but um, John Michael Greer recently did a post showing the empty store shelves, which are becoming more and more common in the United States. It seems to me that the um, I can't even say it on the air, but the um, the <laughs> thank um, you. I I appreciate the boys yeah. disease. Tour. Yes, the the Chinese delicacy. <laughs> the, right, the the disease, the disease pestilence. Has, and, that's what we and, call and, it, the pestilence. And, yeah. <laughs> right, the plague, and the response to it has um, unwittingly shown just how. Um, um, not resilient an efficient system is and the idea that it's simply inevitable because it's working at that particular moment in time i think is just another example of this illusion of perfection which technology mm -hmm. has when it's brand new which only later do you see all of the bugs and this is one of them so the so, amish in this case would be uh, better off in this kind of system <laughs> because they're a lot more uh, uh the amish you know. and ms13 will survive to yes Poporzy. yes yeah and the uh and by the way we are going to have a stream on friday with uh, uh bennett uh bennett's uh i can't extra dead jcb you know who i'm talking about so we're going to go about mormonism as well on how the mormons are also going to survive as well geo but anyway geo go for it um i wanted to go back chad to um when you were talking about your sort of mystical inclinations. Uh, there's this one chat. I wonder, you could probably relate this to technology. Um, I wanted to ask you about the question of presencing. There's this, I think what you have done in being in oil in the first few chapters to me is really innovative because you compare the philosophy of St. Paul with Heidegger in terms of presence. So for example, Christ comes down on the uncreated light at the resurrection. Then uh, this, when Mary dies, the soul of Mary is held by Jesus as a baby surrounded by the uncreated light. But I wonder if that presencing of the new law, the new covenant that Christ is the fulfillment of, are you trying to say that in a way it's like with our sort of technophilic society that that in a way is like this presencing towards some kind of new reality the way that these transhumanists like like to uh soy face over um i can maybe you can elaborate on this connection between heidegger and saint paul and also the question of technology itself hmm? oh chad you are muted right now you gotta unmute yourself there we go oh, there we go Everybody subscribe, by the way. All the new people subscribe right now. Chat is muted once again, so uh, please unmute. There we go. Oh, uh, muted once again. <laughs> Guys, you got to keep in mind, he is in rural India, and yeah. this is amazing that we are even able to have a stream with somebody from rural India. Anyway, chat, take it away. Sorry, it seems that um, I accidentally put it on safe driving mode. <laughs> oh, <God>. So, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the modern technology, which I've um, you know sort of intentionally not uh, learned how to use, um, I guess uh, you know things like that will inevitably happen. <laughs> but uh, um, thank you for that um, interesting question. This uh, um, combination of uh, thinkers, considering relation to one another, um, I think you could easily write a whole book on that topic. Oh, yeah. um, but one thing which I have maybe revised my position on in more recent years, um, kind of say by the fourth book, there's this talk of, I guess, the um, registration of presence of um, not just the somatic essence of a worldview. So in the earliest work, 
there's this idea that um, any sort of instantiation of progress is true, provided Mm -hmm. the somatic um, essence of the fossil fuels are still there. Um, Take away the fossil fuels and none of that is true. The be that the idea of um, um, what's the word for it, um, social mobility, um, or uh, rather um, the idea of um, you'll, you'll make more money than your parents is basically what I'm trying so to get at here. The um, boomer dream, yeah. Right. Um, there's a technical term for it, but um, I think it's an ascending society. Okay, so you have this idea that the society should be ascending. Everyone makes more money than their parents, even though that's not really been true for a couple generations. Um, but that's true, provided you have the fossil fuels, which you're really talking about. So that's the early philosophy. The later philosophy is that um, there's um, not just the somatic essence, there's other kinds of essences. And um, if you're talking about religion, you're talking about the pneumatic essences from the ancient Greek term for spirit. You're talking about the spiritual essence is a big part of Julius Evola's philosophy is yes. that um, the hermeneutical um, interpretation um, under modern technology, well, really for him, just under modernity in general, um, because this begins for him way before you have, you know, modern technology in our sense. Um, you have this sort of decline at varying levels, even say back in, he talks about uh, Socrates obsessing over language is the sort of linguistification, which is the opposite of the kind of hermeneutics in which the spirit itself actually manifests itself. Yes. So. Right, so we have this idea that um, the, um, the, the spirit could appear, but if somebody in modernity um, sees it, they will misrecognize it inevitably because of their own failure to be a subject. If you have the appearance of the hero of war, he'll appear as a dangerous fanatic who has to be rehabilitated into a, a corporate office drone and um, a suburban idler, okay, and a consumer. Um, if you have the um, ascetic of religion, he will seem like a useless parasite. He doesn't even work. He doesn't make any money. What's the, what is the point of all that he's doing? So that's the really scary thing is it's not that the spiritual essences don't appear whatsoever within modernity, which I think you might fall for. It might be easy to think that that's what he's talking about. And right. you see, right. You see comments all over the place about, well, um, when the Kali Yuga ends, you know, then this stuff will appear again. But what if it's already appearing, but you just can't see it because you're not enough of a subject. And similarly, even if you have um, a certain loss of presence from the fossil fuels um, and a certain replacement by another worldview, I think we're already starting to enter the salvage worldview because um, John Michael Greer showed the uh, graph for the limits to growth from the 1970s, which showed that industrial output is the first thing to uh, begin declining even before, say, um, resources become like you're talking about peak oil. Most people um, assume that you're only talking about decline in um, resources. That is not true. You have a number of factors. And the first one, interestingly enough, to begin going into a very steep decline is the industrial production. And, and Greer mentioned the, the empty store shelves. That's basically the sign that this has already arrived. So in a certain sense, we're already entering the year of salvage in which um, you are better off trying to um, trying to uh, rehabilitate um, industrial stuff that already exists into some other purpose rather than just go to Walmart and say well I can just get it for a few dollars there so what's the point that mentality is only true if you have the fossil fuels and even though the fossil fuels in a certain sense still exist I think we we're we're witnessing a somatic shift um, playing itself out in real time and I think um, especially with the, um, the turmoil of the past few years, we already see something that is the exact opposite of progress. And so many people, I think, are losing their minds because they don't know how to process it. Yeah. yeah. That, that observation right there is amazing. That, 
it reminds me almost of like so like the anti-psychiatry like rd lang talking about there are shamans among us but yet like in the birds of paradise there are shamans among us but yet we give them prozac and then it's like what are we going to do but well, that, we that's an amazing be, uh, observation you know it definitely is amazing well we consider <laughs> some of the shamans to be pretty sus even though they are among us but uh oh. anyway <laughs> i just had to do a geo had oh. to do it but anyway but, um uh, chad go ahead well, yeah, when it comes to all the philosophers that you've looked at who would you say, and let's say, I know that as far as peak oil goes, and, you know, we have uh, John Michael Greer, you have Petty Linkola, you have a lot of very interesting people with those views. Who would you say, like, beyond that particular subject, as far as just talking about things like metaphysics, for example, who would you say you personally uh, enjoy reading or resonate with or whatever you want to insert here with uh, the most? Um. That's a that's a very difficult, I guess, um, thing to uh, narrow down to say maybe just one person. <laughs> I could maybe give you a few thinkers who are the most rewarding to study on a purely intellectual um, level, regardless of whether you actually agree with them or not. So um, I don't um, particularly agree with Hegel, um, mm. but... I do think that phenomenology, phenomenology of spirit is probably the, the single, I don't know, greatest uh, work, single work of philosophy. Um, I know I did the, uh, the, the 50 greatest last year and ranked it number three because it'd been some years since I'd read it. But as we're going through the text um, as, um, as a, a group reading um, over YouTube once again, that's probably the it, – it'd, uh, it'd be very hard to argue um, – for a work which which could top it, <laughs> I think. Mm -hmm. um, so, Phenomenology of Spirit is a text which, um, ironically enough, is in a certain sense one of the greatest um, reading experiences you'll have in your life. And yet, it's a reading experience which many people try to have, but find that the doors locked somehow. There was a meme of a guy returning his copy of Phenomenology of Spirit to a bookstore. And he said, um, well, there's a problem with this book. All the pages are blank. And he said, well, there's no problem with that book. It's an ornamental text. You're not supposed to read it. You're supposed to put it on the shelf. So people will <laughs> yeah. think that you're really smart. Um, it's funny. I, I was cooking up this question when you mentioned Hegel. Um, do you think that Similar to Heidegger, I mean, I know uh, Logo the other day was trying to tell me, you know, Heidegger bases everything off of Hegel. I'm like, oh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> there, there was. Do you think that the present, the sort of, the threat of the full presence of technology itself, or rather, the reality of oil, in its finitude and its limitation, because you, like as you said, Hegel, he goes on about finality and about uh, limitation. Do you think that the final limitation of peak oil, that that could potentially disrupt this sort of perpetual, like Hegel, Hegelian um, uprising and like, you know, the notion and then notions turn over and it's opposite and so forth. Do you think that the whole Hegelian project will just, as soon as the oil stops flowing, it's like Hegel just goes out the window and that's it. Or do you think that there still will be that... Um, realization of absolute spirit going forward or is that sort of does that become impossible as the means of human fulfillment becomes impossible well i think that um the question of whether hegel is just another thinker of progress so um hmm. john michael greer has repeatedly dismissed hegel as um 
just another thinker of progress. Hegel has yeah. nothing original, yeah. right? It's just another example of no different than Ray Kurzweil telling us progress is happening and it's leading <laughs> to a certain singularity. Um, yeah. But I, I don't think that that's really Hegel. I think that's Hegel's interpreters in the 19th century. And I've tried to show in um, detail um, in this sort of a paragraph by paragraph level as we've been going through the text, very specific places which are easily overlooked where Hegel says the exact opposite of what his same Marxist interpreters have claimed that he said. Um, mm. They're very obscure passages which um, are buried deep within the book. For example, in the um, section on psychology itself within Observing Reason, he moves beyond psychology because that treats the human being as an organism embedded within an environment in which what it does is a response to material influences in much the same way that a, a squirrel, mm. for example, will react to stimuli with its, within its environment. And Hegel is arguing here explicitly that any human subject who is fully determined by external material conditions in his environment is not a real subject. Well, that's the exact opposite then of what most people think Hegel said, because quite frankly, they haven't actually read him. And um, <laughs> I mean, no disrespect to John Michael Greer, but he is he's another person who has claimed on his blog that it's, it's not even possible to read Hegel. Um, you, mm. They're simply ink blots which you project your own ideas into and then credit it to someone who's a respected thinker um and that's um an opinion i think which is far from the truth if you actually look at a paragraph by paragraph um, level at hegel the idea that the end of history is just the full um realization of materialism which is kind of the marxist view of hegel yes. which most people yeah. mistakenly attribute to hegel that's actually wrong um the the um influence i think on hegel was actually her hermetic um occultism um and the hermetic tradition um having a, a very different kind of spiritual progress i don't even know that progress is the right word we have i think here a certain equivocation between um material progress and mm -hmm. this other thing which in a certain sense is maybe an improvement so in um, mm -hmm. jordan peterson for example he argues that um, in any um, historical context whatsoever, the human brain is configured such that it has to have this map of meaning towards an ideal future, or um, if that ideal future doesn't exist, you, you can't exist either, because you, you simply right. can't deal with the stresses right. of life. Um, so we have something like that um, moving towards that ideal future. Is that really progress, or is that just an improvement, a personal improvement within your own life? It's, it's a very fine distinction, and I think that similarly with Hegel, you have an improvement from finer and finer grades of notion. But I don't think it's anything like progress in the modern sense of the term, especially right. as Hegel thinking in um, blatantly um, uh, heretical terms about things like politics, talking, uh, defending the monarchy. Um, yes, thinking yeah, the, of, Prussian, yeah, the Prussian school yeah. system. And, I, I think that's why uh, Karl Popper was not a real big fan of Hegel. He totally dismissed all of his works. Well, Popper is such a low-wit commentator on hegel well hold on hold on chad what do you what do you think of popper oh. uh southern india oh, we gotta wait until uh the sound look at this sargon is my favorite philosopher i'm like you guys are killing me <laughs> oh god although no my favorite one was jordan peterson's daughter somebody wrote that uh up yeah. here Oh, it was no one. No one wrote Jordan Peterson Dark. Chad, I hear I hear the uh, the cars, the cartoon cars over there in the background. So you must be back. 
<laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sorry about that. I think no. um, you know the internet here is still a little bit um, a little bit unreliable, but um, it's still um, something which uh, I guess we should be very thankful that we can do such a call as this um, across the world for free. And um, <laughs> I don't know how much longer that'll be the case. I've noticed YouTube has a lot more ads lately, so I think they're yeah. getting ready. Yeah, they're getting ready to start the. Um, yeah, they're going to go the way of Netflix. You ha- you'll have to pay a subscription fee, I think, to use it uh, pretty soon. <laughs> oh man! But, uh, but with with, uh, mm-hmm. but with uh, Karl Popper, do you have any thoughts on him, or you haven't really looked into Karl Popper as much? I'll be perfectly honest with you. Most of what I know about Popper, I read through Habermas. Um, in graduate school about um, 10 years ago. Um, he has this idea of the, the three worlds, if I recall correctly, um, but I don't know how much of that is different from what you already have with, uh, say, Frege, um, yeah. which in a certain sense you already have with Plato. <laughs> well, his critique was that Hegel was like the authoritarian that's going to like implement totalitarian utopianism and like liberal democracy <laughs> is anti-Hegelian. It's like, it's, you know, that kind of like level, like, here's the thing. I, I don't, I think Hegel, I'm not a Hegelian, but I think that as you were saying, there's certain Marxoid bastardizations of what the Hegelian project, and at least in terms of the fulfillment of absolute spirit in history. Um, I noticed like throughout your texts, you're very um, ambivalent towards like, Maybe that's why you left academia. You're very ambivalent towards like the concurrent like Marxoid thought post Hegel, because of course the Marxists themselves don't care about Hegel anymore. But what do you <laughs> think of like the revival of sort of like the bread tube theory cell, like Mark Fisher, capitalist? I mean, I love Mark Fisher, but like the sort of capitalist realist zero books crowd. Like, what do you think of that? The way that academic philosophy, specifically academic Marxism, the way that it's going, like uh, you know. Um, I'll, I'll be perfectly perfectly honest with you. I don't think I've um, really uh, seen or read um, the uh, figures you just mentioned. I follow very <laughs> few channels on YouTube. I mostly just use internet these days to upload um, the videos on Hegel. Mm. Um, and, you know, to, to log into things like, say, Patreon and, and email. But um, I really can't think of a, uh, a, a vlog um, that, I, that I really follow anymore, to be honest with you. Um, although, you know, maybe I should be looking into these things more. I'm sorry. Hmm. <laughs> um, so you I haven't wonder- read Mark Fisher, though, is that or is it just because um, it seems that like Marxism has hit a sort of like renaissance, like, not renaissance, but it's uh, anyways. Yeah, sorry, love you. You had a question. Yeah. Well, I want to go back to uh, what uh, Chad was uh, mentioning before regarding uh, hermeticism. I'm very interested in looking mm. at the uh, history of what exactly this thing is, because just as somebody who, as the uh, BTR audience already knows, I do the meditation, breathing techniques, see all kinds of stuff, and from that, it's very easy for me to uh, link different things together that I happen to see online. And that's kind of the benefit that I see of having uh, this internet here, is that we are able to get all kinds of information. We may come to the wrong conclusions, though, so I don't want to rely solely on pattern recognition here. But where would you say, Chad... Uh, hermeticism uh, came from as far as like how old are, lo- are a lot of these things and would you also be able to link it to let's say uh, Kabbalistic uh, Judaism as well and in general these various <laughs> systems that we have of uh, I don't know how to say it like oh, these no, various, no, no. <laughs> these various, these various uh, blueprints of uh, 
self-transformation of uh, transmuting one's energy to a higher level, whatever you want to say here in this hippy-dippy way that I'm saying it. But anyway, Chad, go for it. <laughs> uh, hermetic um, philosophy is one of the most difficult things that I've ever tried to study. Um, I've tried multiple times to read uh, John Michael Greer's first book from 1996. Um, I, I think it was called um, Pathways of Wisdom. I forget the exact title. It was a, it was a very old book um, in which he tries to explain um, hermetic philosophy through um, the, the Kabbalist um, you know, uh, school of thought. Um, but I find the book extremely difficult to understand. And um, I think that that is because I have never really gotten into magic myself. Part of that was because um, growing up in traditionalist Roman Catholicism, um, you have this idea, at least as I was told as a kid, that magic is worshiping Satan. So they were, my parents were talking about um, uh, Elvis Presley was dabbling in magic when he, back in the 1950s, and they described it as worshiping Satan. So that left such an impression, even though rationally I don't agree with that now, it still um, um, gave a certain um, hesitation to getting into um, that subject matter too much. But I guess I also just acknowledge that it is a subject which is so serious that I um, I try to uh, maintain a certain respect for it to be discussed properly by people who are, are really um, not just knowledgeable about it, but also um, involved in the practice of it, like John Michael Greer and others. Um, but one thing I guess I could say is that um, this emphasis on moving beyond the illusion of a plurality of physical objects, which is kind of the natural attitude, the naive stance that you have towards the world, which as you gain better understanding on a spiritual level, you'll transcend that illusion towards a certain unity. Um, mm. um, I remember having a discussion with um, a, uh, uh, Abdel Rahman in Egypt from uh, last year on my own channel, um, in which um, it was, um, we wondered whether this is basically what Plato is really talking about with the allegory of the cave. You start with um, the illusion of a plurality of objects which turn out to not really be what they seem. You start with um, shadows on a wall, okay? And those seem to be real and they do seem to be many, okay? Only to find that the shadows don't exist. They're just representations of puppets. Then the puppets as a plurality of objects seem to be real, even though they're not. They're just representations and Ultimately, you don't end with the world of ideas in which you see the real plurality of all of the different concepts. You end with the sun, which is the metaphor of the good, which is a unity, but it's not the kind of unity which you get with a very strange kind of object. This is um, Hegel's critique of Fichte. He says um, that with Fichte, you, you do have the beginning of German idealism um, with this understanding that um, the, the external reality in a certain sense exists insofar as it is, um, it is willed subjectively, but Fichte misunderstands the implications of his own discovery by um, picture thinking it into a very strange kind of object, which inevitably has to be deferred into the beyond. And I think that um, the, the point Hegel is trying to make about understanding um, notion in, in terms other than that, I think that that has some sort of common ground with this um, hermetic idea and going back to Plato that when you actually, you can, you can think about unity in the abstract but if you picture think it as a very strange kind of object you won't really understand it mm. That's so very, you're saying uh, that magic in a way is this the sort of inklings of the basic sort of noumenal distinction within german idealism that 
instead of some abstract representation. Therefore, magic is the attempt at creating a concrete condition of, let's call it the absolute. Is, is that sort of like, because a lot of academic philosophers, they would look at that as like, totally batshit crazy bonkers pseudo philosophy <laughs> so like well you mean german idealism has its roots in occultism oh my god well like, it's also interesting for me know. to compare it to uh advaita vedanta hinduism where we also have this idea of transcending dualism transcending yourself and everything outside of yourself and it's interesting that there is in uh, Judaism this idea of, uh, well, in Kabbalistic Judaism, Ein Sof, which is understood as God prior to any self-manifestation in the production of uh, any spiritual realm. So, I don't know, like, since you're living in India right now, you've probably had a chance to speak with uh, various uh, practitioners there. And I'm curious if you would, even though I know, like, magic is not something that you would uh, specifically focus on, if you do see similarities in that kind of Hindu philosophy, also having to do with, like, kundalini, chakras, all that kind of stuff, and these various frameworks for uh, spiritual enlightenment that we would see in uh, Hermeticism, for example. Well, um, the um, the extent that I've studied Hinduism, um, especially as somebody who um, doesn't speak Sanskrit, and um, my Hindu friends emphasize that you have to be extremely careful when translating from the Sanskrit um, to English. And I've I've seen a bit of disagreement um, over just that. Um, the um, the famous um, contemporary Hindu philosopher Sadguru wrote a book claiming that Lord Shiva in Sanskrit is a certain play on words for, um, if I recall correctly, um, no limitation. So um, mm. he's making the argument that the limitation, which you take for granted as being a defining feature of the kind of physical beings which you're immersed in in the naive standpoint that is something which um if you make it all the way if you understand the the characteristics of lord shiva you'll realize that he is defined by precisely the, the exact opposite of that um when you when you reach the layer of i guess um god himself i've heard one argument though i don't fully understand it um that in hinduism you have a plurality of gods you have many different um goddesses and gods even to the extent that um i remember passing a hindu temple with my wife and asked i, I saw an idol of a goddess, I said, who is that? She said, well, I don't know. There are so many. It's a local deity in the place we were traveling through. Um, you have this plurality of gods even within Hinduism, but I have heard that really when you make it to the highest level of understanding, you'll find a unity in which all of those are just different manifestations. That's uh, what I uh, heard as well. If we're talking about Shiva, Brahma, and Vishnu, they're the trinity that are really all one. But it's another interesting thing, and you mentioned this uh, in your uh, wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, episode concerning uh, Shiva, where Brahma was very enamored by this uh, female that he created. So he ended up uh, chasing it around, uh, adopting various forms, and I think uh, it was Shiva who chopped one of Brahma's five heads off. And for me... It goes to this idea of all of us, to a certain extent, being stuck to attachment in some way. I mean, so many religions talk about this uh, quality, and uh, the Kabbalah also talks about it, how we want to always uh, receive instead of give, and how we have to transmute those qualities. Anyway, what I'm trying to get here uh, at, Chad, is 
do you see the current state that people are in when it comes to being stuck online, when it comes to receiving all these dopamine hits, that it's like another layer that people are putting on top of themselves, preventing any spiritual or any intellectual philosophical uh, growth? And what do you think uh, is ultimately, if we don't achieve uh, this uh, state of uh, peak oil and uh, the salvaging afterwards, if it keeps going the way it does, what do you think is going to happen to all the people who right now are just stuck with all these hashtags and avatars and are just living in the completely denatured state from the state that they lived uh, from their ancestors? Well, it's interesting that um, the, the dopamine hits from the technology um, are not only stopping you from um, appreciating the spiritual um, truths or whatever as they manifest themselves, like we have this idea, which is certainly true, that um, you can't focus on spiritual things because you're overwhelmed by sensations of pleasure, no matter how artificial their origin might be. Um, a social media like releases something like six biochemicals into your body, which um, I guess are the same that would be released if you, let's just say, went down to the market and you happen to see um, someone you haven't seen in a while, you have a, a you know a nice exchange with them, and you get a you have a good feeling because it was a positive um, uh, interaction with another person. Well, the social media apparently um, releases those, at, um, even if there's no person on the other end. It could be a bot, right? And it's certainly not qualitatively the same. And the the irony here is that you have this ability to re reduce the release of dopamine. Um, on a moment's notice through through purely Pavlovian means, basically ringing a bell. But the story really doesn't end there. If you um, study a book like, say, um, you know, Gary Wilson's Your Brain on Porn, the problem with that sort of artificial stimulation is not that you're flooded with dopamine, so you become so lazy that you can't focus on um, on uh, serious intellectual matters. It's rather that that sort of abuse of artificial stimuli also inhibits your ability to release dopamine. So mm. um, the irony of that sort of um, um, obsession with solving the technological means of feeling pleasure, even if, there's, if, if it's just purely an illusion, um, only works in the short term. Over the long term, you actually lose your ability to feel pleasure from things that would have otherwise um, given it to you. And um, you um, are no longer able even to uh, feel it from the same stimuli that you had been abusing. And I think that this is a situation which you ask when the fossil fuels are gone, you can no longer perhaps do this. Are people going to wake up in mass and you know uh, reject this way of life of uh, the techno that the technological system had um, made them accustomed to living or um, and and start taking intellectual spiritual matters seriously, um, or will they simply cease to exist anymore? That's a very interesting question, which I think will. Um, vary from person to person, but if we consider Aristotle's distinction among the three lives um, in the Nick, Nick McKean ethics, um, the three kinds of happiness which people feel um, are ones in which um, each layer you have fewer and fewer people have access to it. Um, the vulgar life of pleasure in which your motivation for action is simply feeling good feelings, no matter what those might be. That is the sort of default stance towards life, which yeah. pretty much everybody lives their life for, right? Um, the life of uh, political engagement in which you're trying to bring good for the community. 
um, that is uh, uh, accessible to an intrinsically smaller number of people because these are people who are actively trying to be virtuous. Although, of course, it sounds kind of, you know, um, Naive. Um, um, <laughs> yeah. right. It sounds like a parody to say that about today's political activists, <laughs> but um, under the ideal conditions, <laughs> they would be doing that. <laughs> um, but the, the, the smallest number of people who have the highest level of happiness are the, are the ones who dedicate themselves to trying to pursue truth. This is the life of the philosopher, right. which you know, who knows, far under a single percentage point of the human population, especially today, is even interested in that. Well, so it's, it's, very, it's, it's very similar to uh, that example in Gnosticism, where you have the pneumatics, the uh, psychics, and the, uh, what was the, hylix. So they probably uh, took that from uh, Aristotle, although I'm not, I'm not sure. Or much of Aristotle and Plato might be this sort of traditional knowledge, which yeah. um, in an era where you did not really have to obsess over being original and especially avoiding copyright, um, you know, infringement issues, um, like in the medieval era, for example, um, you have uh, traditional stories told over and over again, um, because that was the entire point. The entire point was to um, be, um, you know, uh, thinking about things which everybody knew were truths. Um, we only have this idea that you have to be completely original when you start having things like um, copyrights. So much of Aristotle, although he is, of course, also um, an incredibly original thinker, I think he was also um, retelling truths which everybody knew to be true and ultimately because they were you know from from some sort of spiritual uh school of thought i think i think i think that's the problem nowadays is that the the notion of the genius and i think academia does this quite terribly in that you have a sort of like reified picture of the creator either a philosopher or the artist for instance in many traditions from medieval europe to the east even to for example with literati painting or with um poetry like it wasn't there wasn't a huge emphasis on the artist as a singular like micro celebrity entity that is possessing over the work like for example we know that basho's poems for instance a lot of them were just written by his students that were then <laughs> same with zen koans and same with literati paintings they were painted by the students and then under the master's name which was denoting of something more than just sashu or whatever you know but nowadays it's like you have this quote-unquote original concept that you've hammered out and there's sort of like the bracketing of your mm. life world there it's like and, and it's crazy. funny how at the same time there's i think uh less originality which yeah, marks itself as, as being as, yeah as a being uh original and it is quite interesting, though, to look at the uh, early 20th century and uh, later on in the 20th century, and you see all these big people, you know, like Tesla, Einstein, uh, you know, uh, Heidegger, you know, wh whatever. Uh, the point is, is that there's all these different people that we can look at and say, oh, my God, they accomplished all of this amazing stuff. Who do we have today that compares other than Chad Haig? Like, Chad, do, do you see what I'm saying? Or is this, do you think that this is just... A product of us living in well, the Badu time. Well, Badu is still alive, but I wouldn't count. It. I, I wouldn't compare him to Heidegger. Put it that way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I don't know. Like Chad, who do you think would? I mean, I don't know. It's hard to say. But see, this is what I'm talking about. It may not be that we're a part of uh, this era and can't uh, see the people who are later on going to be known as the Napoleons of uh, their time. It may just be that 
<laughs> the uh, small people have inherited the earth. I don't know. Or again, this could just be <laughs> going on in my head. Uh, Ch Chad, what do you think? Well, it's interesting that um, we had this um, we had this revolution in the way that we think about the production of intellectual content. Okay, especially with Kant, um, in which Kant thinking about art. Um, in painstaking rational detail concluded yes. that the thing about art is that you actually don't understand it. You, you don't understand Van Gogh or Mozart or Cervantes. You experience it, but you don't understand it for the very specific reason that understanding is subsuming under the concept. And the concept um, is a certain linguistic mediation which tells you what a thing is. So if I see a monkey on the side of the road here in India, um, I know what that is to <clears throat> me because I, I have the concept of a monkey to tell me what it is. If I experience um, Beethoven's uh, Seventh uh, Symphony, um, I don't have the notion to tell me what that is. I can experience it, but it is precisely because I don't have the concept to subsume it under that the, the faculties of subjective experience are allowed to enter into this harmonious free play, and that's what gives you the pleasure. And that is also what um, causes the form itself of the art to have to be so arbitrary um, that that's a matter of happenstance that somebody just happened to be a genius to produce it. It's, it's simply a matter of historical happenstance that Mozart mm -hmm. was born, that um, Cervantes was born according to Hegel, or excuse me, to, to Kant. <laughs> Sorry, this is um, the first morning I haven't been lecturing on Hegel in like two months. <laughs> um, so um, you have this idea of originality because, precisely because um, you don't have any rational rules to explain either how it is interpreted or even how it is produced. If you were to interview um, Mozart and ask him how he did it, he wouldn't be able to tell you, okay? Right. So it's ironic that we have this really starting with Kant before then, say in the medieval era, you have this um, perhaps recycling of well-known stories. Even um, Dante recycled many things that were already well-known stories in uh, the medieval era. And um, he was, at the same time, far more original, ironically enough, than the people today who are quite literally paid millions of dollars to be a cast of professional, creative, original thinkers in Hollywood. That is literally their job, is to be these geniuses who can produce these films on the basis of nothing except their own um, talent, which they have by natural happenstance. And yet, um, it's gotten to the point where I can't think of a single movie coming out that's not a remake or sequel. And right. um, it's, it's funny that um, in 2012, um, Slavoj Žižek was being sarcastic uh, when he um, claimed that uh, work itself under modern technology has become so abstract that if you were to have a strike, it would be professional creative thinkers um, doing an Ayn Rand style refusal to use their brilliance for a select amount of time until their demands are met. <laughs> yeah. It was funny that we... Right, professors I'll, I'll just would take was... uh would start drinking uh, paint thinner then that would be <laughs> sort of kill the brain cells <laughs> right we can have professors refuse to publish monographs which nobody's going to read anyway <laughs> i could see... just i could just imagine like ben burgess or whoever just be like i'm not going to publish this book about giving... <laughs> Sorry, Wait, was that, is that is that what he sounds like does he sound like marlon brando he does he's no oh god no <laughs> God, no. <laughs> By the way, that's another original, you know, Marlon Brando. You know, there aren't that many people who were alive like Marlon Brando. You know, there he was doing what Marlon Brando he was does. One of the. <laughs>
<laughs> he went to, uh, he, he did kind of like a Chad Haig move, you know, he went out into the jungle. <laughs> not, not, not just he in the He pointed movie. out who they were in Hollywood. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. All right. Oh. But, but um, uh, yeah, that is, yeah. but that is true. Like the cult of the genius, it's, it's, it's very interesting how nowadays it's even more like, that was the basic point, I think, of the Slaughter Dyke book, Foam, where it's like everyone's in their like little micro bubble. There's no longer any sort of um, heliospheric like hole to anything. So like, how do you think, because I had this idea when I was reading Being an Oil a while ago, <laughs> that um, it's like plastic is basically the foundation of like smartphones and computers. Well, I mean, Colton and silicone and blah, blah, blah. But plastic is the frame from which we entered this like demiurgic, like reintroduction of the spiritual in this terrifying, alienating way through technology, through like the digitality of all life, through hyperreality. And I'm thinking like oil brought us to sort of this Reddit version of reenchantment. It's like that's that's to me like people. I think people don't realize the extent to which plastic and oil itself has the like the bones of dead living things are processed into a solid that can be used for any application and that brings us to this global consciousness in a way it's like <laughs> when you think of it in those terms it's like when you think of like how um the internet was created from darpa technology that was coordinating bomb strikes it's i think mm. like some like some like leftoid writer like sam chris was talking about this it was a good article well, but like well, I'm well, it's just funny. Right it's funny, Gio, that you should mention bones because in that uh, wonderful video that Chad did talking about Rudolf Steiner and the reincarnation mm. of uh, Ariman, Ariman was described as being the bones as opposed to Lucifer, which is the blood. The blood mm. which like goes outwards. The bones are mm. hardening, and it's just like this dullness and this hardening of one's consciousness that is the Ariamonic age that, at least according to Steiner, we are living in. I'm curious. To uh, Chad, uh, from uh, reading uh, Steiner's works, uh, how um, uh, how do you feel about it? How do you feel about that uh, interpretation that he had? I think it's very hard to argue against it. Um, one thing is mm. certain: um, the the irony about technology as being hardwired to make spiritual content invisible. You, you literally can't see it. And it's interesting that John McGreer mentioned that one possible explanation for all of the craziness going on right now is precisely that in 2016, um, it became fashionable in early 2017, especially after, um, you know, who was elected. It became fashionable among leftist neo-pagans to literally um, bring out demon summoning manuals from centuries ago. <laughs> and abuse them and tiktok Greer baby which is cursing orange man <laughs> <laughs> and, oh. and you mentioned that if they if they had demanded they sold their souls to some demon in exchange for democrats controlling the white house and the senate <laughs> only to find what that, what like can oh. you imagine a bigger self-felting cell phone than sorry go ahead <laughs> I was just going to say they didn't they they neglected to realize that even in order to get that majority in the Senate sorry the uh, fish truck is here um, in order to get that majority in the Senate given the the demographic um can you hear me yes yes, yes yeah, I can, can hear, hear you. you I'm gonna post okay, the, uh, I'm gonna post a picture 
I'm gonna post a picture of Manu, uh, since you're in India right now, to uh, celebrate you, uh, the fish truck arriving. So the democratic majority, go ahead. Okay, so the, the thing you have to understand about the demographic and geographic configuration of the United States is in order to get that Democrat majority, a certain percentage of the Democrats have to come from red states. So if you, you can get your 51 Democrats, including Kamala Harris, but they're going to be people like, some of them are going to be people like Joe Manchin. And it was the same thing in 2008 where you had a Democrat majority, but some of them were from places like Arkansas. So yeah. the joke is on them because they got their majority, but they're not getting all of their far left proposals. And that's um, something which Greer mentioned. Um, if you make a deal with a demon, the joke's actually going to be on you. They'll give you what you say you want rather than what you actually want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They all, there's always unintended consequences. This, there's this very great line from the Nicolas Cage film, Eight uh, Millimeter, where Joaquin Phoenix's character, Johnny uh, California, says, he goes, you know, when you dance with the devil, the devil don't change, he changes you. So it's like, it, it says so much about, like everything that we were ta we're talking about right now. From And the fact that technology could like facilitate that sort of, albeit profane and inverted and counter-initiatory, hyper-political expression of it. But the fact that technology like TikTok mediates this like re-enchanted, like I'm going to cast a spell on evil, tiny Cheeto Hitler. It's, it's, it's almost like that one, uh, that one art piece by, um, what's his name? Uh, oh God. He does like the, the technology of the cameras, um, by Namjoon Pak, Namjoon Pak, where he like has a Buddha statue that's being, there's a webcam facing it. And it's like, it's on the TV screen and it's like looking at, it's like the Buddha is looking at itself mediated by the webcam. It's like, to me, it's like that crazy, like when you actually think of that mind fuck, like it's, man. <laughs> uh, I throw that up, uh, look up, Lev, look up, um, how, here's how you spell it. Here's how you spell it. All I have right. it right here. Okay. Um, Nam, so N A M, like Vietnam. June uh -huh. Pike, P A I K. Oh, here we go. I found it. Yeah, there you go. Buddha it's not a webcam. It. It's a it's a seventies. Yeah. Oh, Buddha watching TV. Here we go. There you I'm go. Buddha watching right TV. Now. Yes, and by the way, Chad, I'm also the chair of the Art and Technology Committee at the National Arts Club in Gramercy Park. One of the people who they had there, there recently was Boris Johnson, believe it or not. So <laughs> Boris Johnson oh, okay. was Did at the National Did you meet him? No, no, I wasn't there that day, but he was at the National <laughs> Arts Club, and uh, that, that was pretty fun. But anyway, here, so this is the Buddha looking at himself uh, in, the, in that little cute-looking cute TV. That TV looks kind of like Wall-E. It's got a similar, it's got a similar vibe. Well, Not Wall-E, but his girlfriend. So. Wall-E's girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wall-E Wall is like the most reactionary film. It's the most like eco-fash film. Of course, you because his, his uh, Wall-E's girlfriend, <laughs> Wall Gio, Wall-E's girlfriend was wearing a burqa the whole time. Oh, no, oh, sorry, I'm confused. The other film, was Wall-E the one with people that were like human batteries? <laughs> Yeah, but look. Yeah, there you, you go. You don't, you don't know what I'm talking about. It's look, the most. This is, it's it's literally this, like, it's just as fascist as um, the struggle. What was that? <laughs> well, look, Geo. This yeah. is Wally's girlfriend. She's wearing a burqa. Oh God. Like a reverse <laughs> burqa, but still a burqa nonetheless, um, right? Well, well, that's. An, I wanted to ask you. Um, 
as okay so to play devil's devil's advocate um <laughs> how how are you convinced of peak oil because there's some people that are um and then i wanted to ask you about how people are reacting to it like uh, various extremist groups like i guess the taliban could be one um <laughs> how, how Spe- like speaking it, of burka speaking of burka um when it comes to peak oil uh what is like the evidence of the veracity of it? Because it seems that in my circles, I grew up in like normie conservative spheres till I like ventured outside and you have people like Ezra Levant that talk about, you know, well, as long as like the, the Saudis, like we have human rights here, so we should mine oil in Alberta rather than Saudi Arabia. Uh, but, but what, like, what is the argument for peak oil itself? Because there's some people that, that believe in abiogenesis of oil and stuff, but there's, I don't know. It's, yeah. Well, the evidence of peak oil is simply ecological law. Um, mm. John Michael Greer mentioned that we can understand ecological law perfectly well when it applies to other animals. So, for mm-hmm. example, a, a field, um, a, a bunch of field mice, okay, have um, a, a truck full of grain um, accidentally overturned in their habitat. They have a temporary surplus of food, population goes up, they eat through all the grain, population radically declines, and then mm-hmm. it goes back to the population level which before it could sustain. We can understand that perfectly well when it's field mice, but if you bring something like that up for humans, um, you'll have people say, no, 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 innovation. Okay. Once again, a, a label, but they don't actually know what that means. If you go back to the Latin roots, it's simply saying something new, right? But they, right. It's, it doesn't matter because it's simply a label to, um, to uh, be applied to certain things, okay, um, in order for them not to think about um, the ecological problem. So um, abiotic oil is probably the worst example of this, quite frankly, because abiotic oil um, in some forms is literally the idea that oil comes from outer space. Okay, mm. so the uh, one of Greer's arguments for peak oil is the Earth is um, uh, um, it's uh, a sphere, right? Uh, what's the right word for it? It's like a ball. Okay, um, you know we don't have a pipeline coming from Neptune to give us more oil. He says sarcastically, but that's literally what abiotic oil is claiming. the w- The amount of oil on the Earth is not the amount that we have to work with. You know for any uh, time <clears throat> time span that is meaningful for humans, right? It, it, it right. takes um, hundreds of millions of years to get more of it, right? So, um, but abiotic oil is literally the theory that you can get more from outer space. And this is a kind of an extreme example of the way that we have a selective application of ecological law only to those um, things that don't concern us. Okay, Mm -hmm. and ecological law does not stop existing simply because you refuse to think about it um, by having uh, thought stoppers like innovation and, um, you know, human genius uh, and uh, technology um, um, come in to stop you from thinking about it It keeps existing nonetheless. And this is something which for which it's not just the resources running out. It's also the pollution building up. It's also the disruption of ecosystems. All of that is really going on. But even the people who supposedly have have, you know, like the highest IQs, um, these uh, scientists who are um, um, funded um, in order to not think about this sort of stuff, even supposedly highest IQs in the world can't see it. Right. Mm. Um, there are other people that believe that there's certain Russian uh, geologists that believe that perhaps like certain uh, biological like germ organisms that oil is like a living property that can like j- regenerate and replenish. But I don't know. I'm kind of, mm. I, you know how I know it's suspect because a certain thinker of ironies on, on a 
podcaster believes in that. So I don't well, know. What about <laughs> I'm skeptical. <laughs> what about a alternative uh, energy? I keep thinking about, uh, you know, somebody like Nikola Tesla and that beautiful tower he wanted to uh, build, but that all may just be pipe dreams even back then. So I'm curious, uh, Chad, what your thoughts are on, you know, what may have been, would uh, Nikola Tesla's ideas have uh, come to fruition? And if there are any things of that nature potentially on the horizon, or they may have been suppressed or so on and so forth. So one of the problems with um, this talk of alternative energy is oftentimes um, it confuses a product of fossil fuels with a resource in its own right. Um, for example, uh, Michael Rupert in 2009 had to spend a lot of time refuting ethanol. Nobody even talks about ethanol anymore, but the classics of peak oil <laughs> literature from yeah. like the 2000s have to spend so much time refuting ethanol. And um, the the reason we don't even talk about it anymore is because it was eventually realized that that corn is not a resource. It is a product of oil in which you are only able to increase the number of bushels per acre from 20 to 200 with the fossil fuels. And you actually have a net loss of energy when you turn it back into something which can be burned in the car. Um, even more absurd than that was um, Michael Rupert had to refute the idea that plastic could be converted into oil, which is true mm. because plastic is simply oil in the first place. But that is another example of confusing a product of fossil fuels for a resource in its own right. And honestly, the people who are promoting this are probably intelligent enough to know that that's what's going on, but they also have a personal incentive to keep their jobs. You know, they need to uh, pay their mortgage and they need to send their kids to college. And, you know, the cost of healthcare is really high. So they kind of need to keep that six figure job by quite frankly, BSing the public about what's really going on. And I think something like that is going on across, uh, across the board here. Now you do have alternative energies, but it's things like, um, you know, coconut branches. Like I cook rice here outdoors over fire from coconut branches that fall on my own land. That's alternative energy, but that is not at all what people are talking talking about when they bring up that word. Also, um, uh, Cy Cyber Ninja Zero. I have no idea why this word is censored. It shouldn't be. But uh, <laughs> the word nuclear, I have no idea why I censored the word nuclear. Yeah, I wanted to say, I had this big argument with uh, <laughs> a few of my friends, like Joel Davis and Keith Woods in the DMs. They were saying that I'm like totally like a chud brain by... I, I was arguing against nuclear because I believe that as a Catholic, there's encyclicals against it, that it's trying to recreate the uncreated light of Christ and therefore it is evil. So, uh, but but uh, apart yeah. from those uh, metaphysical, yeah, Chad, Chad, what, is what do you your think opinion? of nuclear? The nuclear question. What do nuclear? You, what do you... <laughs> What's the wrong way to pronounce it? Because I like that one better. New nuclear, nuclear. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, if nuclear was viable on the scale that they promised all the way back in the 1950s, in which they claimed that by the year 2000, um, electricity would be so cheap that they wouldn't even bother to, to meter it, and you wouldn't have to pay an electric bill because it would be so negligible that there would be no point. They claim that by every time they bring this up, they say it's only 20 years off. Okay, right. They've been saying that since the 1950s. Greer has mentioned that if it were actually possible, we would have already seen it. Okay, And one of the problems with nuclear... Um, in addition to, you know, uranium also has a, a finite, you, there is such a thing as peak uranium also, um, is mm. that um, the, the, the scale and complexity of the kind of technology you're working with is so gargantuan as to require government subsidies even begin. And if that is the case, there's no way to make it economical. That is to say, there's no way to actually um, disseminate it to especially a population of seven, eight, nine billion um, 
on a, on a, on a level that would be economical, not just for the people who would, who would be, um, the customers, but even for the producers. Okay. And this is something which I think you have a lot of very fancy theoretical linguistification, which can distract you um, from mm. that very simple proposition. When people try to get very passionate about defending nuclear, they get into that sort of linguistification. Um, yeah. I think simply as a way to, to not think about the, a very simple ecological problem. Mm, interesting. Interesting. Well, I want to go back real quick, and you don't have to answer this if you have no idea about it one way or the other, but that uh, tower that I mentioned, the uh, Wardenclyffe Tower that Nikola Tesla created, I'm curious if that would also fall into the category of something that would require a lot of oil up front to build and maintain or whatever, or if we go back to the, uh, what was it, the late 1800s or the, uh, sorry, yeah, the early 1900s, if uh, this object, which I have over here, see, this is a little model of what the tower How does it like. work, love? I don't know. That's the thing. That's why I'm asking Chad. We can completely skip this, not talk about this tower altogether, okay. unless you happen to know anything about it. And so let me know. Well, I can tell you that what we don't have going on is a conspiracy in which elites um, are intentionally keeping us from these free energy sources. You hear this all the time. Yeah, um, you know, among the all conspiracy circles, it's very popular, yeah. Right. The oil companies have bought off the presidents of various countries to keep us from getting free energy. Okay. That's not what you have because um, the, the way that um, this works as a self-propagating system bound by ecological law and by the, um, the intentions of the technological system itself rather than any people um, means that if it were possible, it would have already been done. So mm. fossil fuels did not win this uh, competition of natural selection simply because the elites, um, you know, gathered in a room and agreed that they would transition. Actually, right. many of the elites at that time were um, aristocrats who owned land in sort of a, a feudalist um, context, and they actually resisted industrialization. They wanted to keep that sort of feudalist arrangement because um, that was how they maintained their power. Okay, and um, the the fossil fuels won out. Um, despite the wishes of the elites, simply because on ecological and technological grounds, the conditions were favorable for it to win out. And you make the same argument about um, any sort of hypothetical alternative energy source today. If it, if it was actually viable, it would have already um, become competitive um, against fossil fuels, but that clearly has not happened. Yeah. Is it possible in any way, if we look through history, that there would have been certain, like, no doy type uh, innovations that just never occurred until the right person came along and uh, discovered them. Like, I'm curious, like, what your view of that kind of uh, uh, technological progress of uh, history is. Is it just a matter of when the conditions are right, there must be a telegraph, there must be a so on and so forth? Or is it a matter that certain people, you know, may just think of something outright that has never existed before, and uh, that's the way it works? Well, to be perfectly honest with you, I think that this idea that um, technology comes into existence because of personal creativity and brilliance, mm. I think that that's a way of thinking about art, going back to Kant, as we discussed earlier, which is now being 
quite frankly, misapplied to the realm of technology. It is true that you have this sort of um, arbitrary production of of beautiful form in the realm of art. You have Mozart, Cervantes, etc. I don't think technology works that way. I think technology simply is um, an interconnected system in which um, it provides its own conditions for certain things to be discovered or to be produced or invented at, at various uh, moments in time. And certainly you do have to have people cooperating with that who are sufficiently intelligent or whatever to, to be workers in the service of it. But I don't think that it's simply a matter of um, using their genius to think of something entirely new. Mm-hmm. After all, that's what innovation is. We talk about innovation. Literally, it's just something new, right? So um, Jacques Ellul mentioned at the beginning of technological society that this idea of um, you know um, the Isaac Newton, um, the genius sitting under an apple tree who uses his own mind to work out the laws of gravity, that is, that is um, an, an image of the scientist centuries out of date. At this point, a scientist is simply Simply a, a very small cog in a vast system, including not only other scientists, but at this point, largely the work itself is being done by machines, number crunching at a serious level being done by machines, and of course, funded by world governments and major corporations, and therefore not being done in a disinterested manner, but simply mm-hmm. um, in order to ad- advance their interests. And at that point, you're really not even a thinker. I know I'm going to offend a lot of people by saying that, but um, if you're basically just a yeah. very small cog in a much larger system that's the exact opposite of being a creative genius well like, the, like michel foucault with the death of the intellectual hmm. it's like you become a functionary you become a bug like you're part of the bug hive and it's well, like you uh, don't really have that well let's rewind yeah. well, let's rewind a little bit here because we are talking about something pretty similar to what we were talking about before in this conversation having to do with are there any of these uh, great visionaries today that we can open up a history book and look at the, uh, uh, you know, 18th, 19th, 20th century, look at all these people? And I want to rewind back again to someone like Tesla, because an example of uh, somebody like Nikola Tesla, you have somebody who is, at least according to what I read about the guy, very much unlike many people in that he had these various visions according to his best friend who wrote the biography about him he for example had this again like going back to even some like hinduism going back to kundalini where his friend and nikola tesla i don't think he ever lived in india i don't think he ever had a guru or anything like that but since his childhood he breathed in and out and whenever he breathed in and out he got the uh, sensation in his spine along with all these various visions that uh got him to create all of these uh, inventions that completely revolutionized uh, society. So when I take a look at somebody like that, I see something slightly different than just people applying whatever it is that, uh, you know, somebody else may have applied if uh, not, you know, if, if they weren't around. I see people being able to channel into whether you want to call it the new sphere or the Akashic records or whatever, if you believe in any of that stuff. But I do see something that's going beyond the mundane experience of uh, humanity, but I could be wrong. Well, I mean, someone like Tesla might be a transition point from this ancient Greek idea of techne, in which, sure, the blacksmith is not simply a cog in this who's channeling the intentions of this vast system beyond himself. He's he's somebody who has to work creatively, intelligently, and um, apply you know a certain personal judgment. But that's the I think Tesla's the transition point from that to the modern technological system in which 
Um, so someone like Mark Zuckerberg, um, we have this idea that, uh, you know, Zuckerberg is a, a genius because he thought of <laughs> something which actually, according to the movie Social Media, other people told him about. And then he just, you know, worked out the, the yeah. details of. But we have this idea that Zuckerberg is a genius because he did something which was inevitably going to happen anyway. And he basically just relied on a certain infrastructure that was already in place because of the work of centuries of their work, uh, uh, centuries worth of other people working on it. Um, so we have, I think, a transition point in, in which Tesla is um, certainly not like a Zuckerberg, but he's also admittedly doing something slightly different from a blacksmith. But I don't know that it would be possible for such a person to exist today. I don't think uh, such yeah. a person uh, would exist today. But the other thing I would add about Nikola Tesla, which may be similar to blacksmiths back in the day, I don't know, but it may also be similar to somebody like uh, we were talking about earlier, uh, like uh, uh, Dante, for example. So when you take somebody like Dante, who, as you mentioned, was not like a 100% original thinker, a lot of these things he got from other places, I think what was going on in his mind and his imagination that generated something that has uh, become a classic that has lasted all this time, I think that there are certain processes that happen in certain people's minds where, again, going back to Tesla, he described it as the entirety of what he was going to construct was already in his mind. Now, I can't go into his mind, so I can't know exactly what that looks like. But again, just from the psychedelic, uh, non-drug-induced, mind you, psychedelic experience I've had, you can literally create three-dimensional images inside of your mind and like moving move them around and stuff so i think that there may be these abilities that maybe more people had back in the day and now we've lost them because we're constantly being overstimulated i'm curious actually what you think about that idea of uh the fall of humanity in terms of once having certain powers that now are a uh you know a fraction of their former self <laughs> well, it has not occurred, <clears throat> excuse me, um, accidentally. The um, system has invested um, as much energy as it possibly could into making sure that those abilities were lost. And it did this, ironically enough, through the educational system itself. I mentioned on my channel before that um, when you're being recruited as a student or really as a prospective student loan borrower, they tell you one thing. You know, they tell you, uh, we're, we're here to give you the skills uh, to work the jobs of the future, to have the education, to have a meaningful, fulfilling, high-paying career. And they BS, especially your parents, into co-signing for outrageous student loans, um, $50,000, $70,000 a year in tuition. Um, but when you actually work for them, especially um, as, say, an adjunct, when I did, um, teaching low-level classes, they tell you something radically different. They say, um, we, we don't really teach content anymore. That's an old, outdated view of education. I mean, we realize now that the only point of college is just, you know, developing life skills, you know, just you know, <laughs> knowing how to show up on Critical time. thinking. <laughs> Adulting. Oh. It's training to be... When I was a TA, it was quite a challenge getting them to learn about um, the difference between Nirguna and Saguna Brahman. It was quite... Anyways, um, go ahead. Mm. Go ahead, Chad. <laughs> 
Well, it's, it's, it's a business model in which this has happened precisely because the university was taken over by people who are the exact opposite of intellectuals. Um, it was the case, say, in the 1950s that college administrators were just professors who had to take on administrative duties within the college because somebody else had to do it, okay? Yeah. Um, and they were not paid like a million dollars a year, like the, uh, the um, top administrator at Ohio State University has a salary of like a million dollars a year, okay? That was a change which happened, I guess, really started in the 1980s. 80s after the um, education bubble started really getting inflated um, and largely because you had this outsourcing of factories in which um, you know it was no longer optional everybody had to go to college or at least to feel for four or five years like there was some sort of solution to the rising unemployment and um, the uh, the evaporating jobs around them there's a solution you just go to college and um, you sounded somebody... like Trump by the way when you said when you said evaporating jobs just the way you said it <laughs> Well, it's hard to argue against that. I mean, that's the situation um, that you have um, in, especially in the United States. Um, and you know, you had you had a certain cast of people come in and realize that they could um, um, they could turn this into an enormous cash cow, um, as has been argued with regard to other things we, we see right now. That you know, everybody has to have it. Well, why does everybody have to have it unless somebody's going to make a lot of money off it? That's something you see with college in the 1980s. And at that point, the administrators were no longer, say, professors. Um, somebody who uh, had a PhD in philosophy was fluent in uh, ancient Greek and had studied Socrates and, and or excuse me, sorry, Plato and Aristotle and had written, uh, written monographs on them, as might have been the case in the 1950s. Now these were simply corporate hacks who had been brought in from Fortune 500 companies to maximize the sale of student loans and they realize that the only way to do that is to make it so easy that um, you don't even have to show up to class to get an A and anybody who actually tries to make those students do something like let's say study Plato there was an adjunct who was um, trying to make uh, composition 100, 101 more interesting by having them read the Phaedrus and the administrators yeah. told him yeah, they told him to stop it because we're not doing that bullshit here. Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> I was, no, it's fine. I was you can blessed curse. to go to a, a smaller university in Canada that uh, was filled with like the philosophy department was founded on like hippies that couldn't get jobs anywhere else. So we had like mm. one of the only like paid um, master's programs that had continental and Eastern philosophy. So nice. it was pretty nice. Um, but then, like, if you go to, like, UFT or McMaster or McGill, like, it's, oh, my God. Mm. Like, uh, but I wanted to ask you, now that we're talking about education, um, you're someone who isn't afraid to, like, venture into, um, let's call them reactionary spaces. <laughs> like, Julius Evil. I, I actually went to, um, I actually went to this lecture once by, it was it was a debate panel by this professor that, was the first one that wanted to uh, kick out uh, Michael Millerman, the Dugan scholar. And uh, his book was essentially, if you read Heidegger and Nietzsche, that you're going to become an evil fascist N word. <laughs> and, and I kept, I talked to him cause I knew the organizer. She was my second reader. And so I get, I got to talk to him after I forget his name. Now you could look up this book. Uh, and I kept saying, well, what about this? What about Evola? What about He's like, no fascist, fascist, fascist. I'm like, Okay, I got I got to stop right now. I'm having a head trip, but it, how how like what happened? You you went into length about your experience with university, how the and it, I, my experience was similar. When you get to the graduate level, um, beyond your masters, it's like you have to know people, you have to do what they want you to do, and it's like, um, 
what what where do you see the future for not just education but like mass institutions in general because it seems that there's a sort of with the uh the the imported delicacy world the backstreet boys world tour there seems to have been like this renaissance of managerialism or at least that's what the people at the top want you to think but it seems that people don't trust institutions more than ever so it's like this weird um, we're going to force down the like Fukuyama Kojevian narrative down your throat. We're going to force the, you know, mm -hmm. history wants to return, but we want to push it back. Where do you see the future of these institutions, but more specifically, I guess, academia? Like, are you hopeful that academia is just going to crumble by the wayside or is it going to be a festering corpse that is with us for generations to come? <laughs> well, academia has already become totally irrelevant as far as I'm concerned, because um, I, I mentioned um, in my most recent video that um, even in the best case scenario that you could possibly imagine, say, doing the group reading of Hegel's Phenomenology Spirit, the entire book, as might have been done in the 1980s, but certainly is not done anymore. Even if you had the best case scenario, given that they only accept about three people per year, because they can't afford to bring on more people than that, um, even in the best case scenario, there would be five people in the room. I had graduate seminars where there were literally just three of us, two yeah, students same. and one professor. So it's already irrelevant because... I mean, somebody commented on one of my videos recently and said, oh, well, if Ted Kaczynski had just stayed in academia and published his ideas as a respectable academic monograph, he would have made more of a difference. <laughs> oh, no, no, that's bullshit. Because the way that people know, oh, ne never mind. I'm not going to fed post. Go, go ahead. Mm. Go. No, he would have had a video series with Chad. They would have been uh, doing live streams. We got to hoop him a cell phone there in DXL. We got to... Yeah, we're gonna do this. He's gonna be on BTR. Uh, and, and by the way, look, I finally added the monocle. This I knew is a guy Julius, that had a court. This is oh, Julius God. E. Vola. It's a vol <laughs> who <laughs> you son of a bitch. He <laughs> goes around like when the lawnmower is in the backyard and like everything is just being destroyed. He's just like casually walking around. Yeah, so his battlefield he... is like the the the, <laughs> yeah. the the landscaper coming with the weed whacker, and he just casually strolls through. <laughs> oh my god! Anyways, Chad, go ahead. I'm sorry for this. Awesome oh, I was just voice. going to. Uh, I was just going to say that um, if Ted Kaczynski had published academic monographs critiquing technology even if he had made it big within academia okay let's yeah. just just um imagine the the best case scenario um what would that have actually meant it would have meant that a handful of professors would have name dropped it during a conference which only they would have attended okay nobody really attends academic conferences in the united states except the, the people who presented them you have a handful of professors yeah. and graduate students trying to add one line to the resume and they halfway listen to the other people's um speeches and they ask questions about themselves which are which seem to be questions about the other, but they're really questions about themselves because they didn't care enough to listen to the other person. And they name drop whatever they think is trending that year. Like I remember in 2013, you go to an academic conference and you hear a lot about Catherine Malibu and the, the neuroplasticity, dialectical materialism within the brain. Okay, um, a short-lived academic fad, which some people got duped into writing their dissertation on in say 2013 only to find that by 2015 it was no longer trending and they couldn't get a job so if if kaczynski's theories had gone the way of somebody like that or 
let's just choose someone even less relevant than than her that you know we've probably never heard of because we're not attending these conferences um right. what would it what it would it have really meant except that um it would a handful of conferences and a handful of journal articles which no one would have read would have referenced this just because it was trendy only to forget about it a few years later yeah i think that that is funny um <laughs> it's it's almost like if if Ted Kaczynski were to, to stay in academia, the, his ideas I think wouldn't have resonated with people if it wasn't attached to the modern like mythos of the Unabomber. Uh, I wonder. It's almost as if people that the people who are having the most impact nowadays in terms of ideas, like for example, Bronze Age Pervert comes to mind, where you have to like attach an aesthetic and a vision and like this weird comportment of posting in order to like have a philosophy of action it's kind of it's kind of what yeah. we do here on btr i think it's kind of what you do chad by wearing that dexter's laboratory shirt and by the way <laughs> this comment i love this comment from elagon he could have done a ted talk but he threw it all away god <laughs> you could still do a ted talk maybe oprah winfrey could come you know, interview him in prison, you know? Uh, well, with her money, maybe <laughs> Well, she they did can, with uh... Varge. They interviewed Varge in prison and the, before the light takes us. That was yeah. when he was like, well, <laughs> that was his best interview, in my opinion. Mm. But, um... Well, if Oprah, if Oprah frees him, then she wins in my book. <laughs> if I was the president, I would pardon Ted Kaczynski right away. But that's <laughs> never going to happen. Mm. Um, but I, but well, I want to go. I want to go yeah, back go to ahead, the question that I asked earlier regarding, because I think you were confused at my question. My question was whether we're not going to have the uh, peak oil crisis happening, or let's say until this uh, ends up uh, creating the effects that it does. What do you foresee happening with all the people who are stuck online right now, especially all the Zoomers or Generation Alpha or whoever? Like kids who have... Jill, come, the, gonna come on, come no, on. No, 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 I'm, I'm serious. Like, Chad, like, do you think, do you think that anything can be done to, let's say, bring people out of this stupor using the very machine, the internet, that uh, puts them into the stupor in the first place? <laughs> um, certainly for a percentage, that is the case. Um, I got into Greer, Rupert, um, James Howard Kunstler, um, Kaczynski. Mm. I got into all these people through the internet. So it can happen. But um, as I mentioned at the beginning of, of this discussion, that's a technical problem, which the technological system is working as soon as it notices it's a problem. Um, it mm. does everything it, it can to get rid of them. I think that right now, the global technological system has bigger fish to fry than the handful of people watching YouTube videos on um, Michael Rupert or something like that. It's simply right. not relevant enough for them. But when they do notice, um, certainly this stuff is going to disappear. <clears throat> so we have a very we have a very small window of opportunity. I realize to do this, and I think that the number of people who are actually going to take that opportunity um, is is about as small as the number of people who might use the internet just to say read the classics. Like there was a well-known meme of um, a guy who'd been teleported from our era to ancient Rome with a smartphone. And the Roman people asked him, well, what is that? He said, well, it's an amazing device from the future, which you can access any information in the history of the world on a moment's notice for free. They said, so what do you do with it? Oh, mostly just to argue with people. I don't even know about <laughs> political controversies that'll be forgotten 24 hours later. 
And it's about the same with using the internet to, um, to uh, learn about peak oil. It's, it's the number of people who will actually do that as opposed to the number of people who will get sucked up into the, um, the sensationalism of political controversy, viral YouTube videos, and um, you know things like that. Um, it's so small that I think it's almost negligible. I don't think yeah. the internet alone is going to be enough to bring a mass awakening on this issue. Oh, go on, Gio. Well, no, I was going to say, like the whole, we were discussing before the show, like the whole uh, neoliberal um, end of history, like tech bro, California ideology shit about like, if we give people around the world smartphones, all of a sudden they'll throw throw off their burkas and they'll start mm. um, reading... Uh, They'll start reading uh, John Rawls and they'll, uh, you know, yeah. they'll I have mean, uh, they'll have gay I mean, sex and, you know, that's like the, the <laughs> well, they'll have gay sex while reading John Rawls. Well, you have to have gay sex in order to understand John Rawls. So that's my opinion. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, but there is but there is actually one thing. That's that a hot take. You could clip that yeah. right there. So that's but Gio, this, this is actually something I also wanted to ask Chad because we were talking about Plato, Aristotle, all those great people. When it comes to the education of the elites, this is something that particularly bothers me, where I think that there are people out there who I, you know, I respect uh, how they uh, live and so on and so forth. But there are people out there who have certain things that they just like doing on a day to day basis. They're not interested in philosophy. They're not interested in anything that, let's say, would qualify them to have a uh, position, you know, higher up in the hierarchy or whatever. But then there are people who traditionally, like when you think of elite, you think of, you know, kids who went to prestigious institutions, who read all of the classics, who, you know, kind of like Napoleon, going back to him for a second, had to sleep on these straw mats in this military school. So there's this idea that people who are occupying positions of power that I think that they had to be, uh, you know, in the uh, good old days, they had to be molded in these very, um, you know, very pressurized ways. And as a result, we got people like George Washington and, you know, the Founding Father and so on, who are all very proficient in a lot of these uh, concepts that were passed down. How much is that still the case with the young elite, with the people going to the Ivy Leagues? Uh, and am I making a bigger deal out of this kind of classical education that people in the upper crust were supposed to have? Maybe that wasn't the case. Maybe like uh, most of them were just like all day and we just have this idea that they were just like so high powered. But uh, what do you think, Chad? <laughs> um, it's interesting um, that Chris Hedges mentioned teaching at an Ivy League university versus um, so when he was teaching at an Ivy League university, he said that um, even at was supposed to be the top um, academic institutions in the world, right? So we, we can understand that at the um, state party school with 50,000 students on campus, obviously their education is a total joke. Everybody's, you know, even the administrators are selling the experience of five years of partying in exchange for student loans. And like, they don't even really try to hide it, that that's what's going on. But, you know, you still hear like, well, if you're going to an Ivy League university there, they still take it seriously. Well, Chris Hedges mentioned, even there, the, the students are really only interested in what's going to be on the test and how they can get a high grade and how they can do the minimum amount of work to still um, to still pass, right? Um, he mentioned that he only really found a place that was satisfactory to teach at when he went to prison 
um, that is to say he was teaching prisoners. Um, mm. These prisoners, in contrast, would turn their jail cells um, into little libraries, okay? And they mm. would they would, <laughs> they would would have a dedication towards actually learning, which even at the Ivy League universities you don't find. And, you know, a number of explanations might be offered up for why this is the case. Maybe they have a, a, a greater motivation to try to turn their lives around because they've hit rock bottom. And for them, it's not just four years as a requirement, get this over with and then go to, you know, the next phase of life, because this is just what everybody has to do at this age is how most um, college students think of it. Um, no, for them, they're actually trying to really turn their lives around after hitting rock bottom. I think that's a part of it. But I think another part of it is simply that they do have to live in such difficult conditions compared to oh, yeah. the Ivy League students, right? And it's, it's that difficulty. It's like Hegel. Like, the slave only becomes a better person because he's actually submitted to the negativity of being a slave. The master who um, gets to escape that ceases to be a subject at all. He simply becomes um, a, a passive consumer of what the slave produces, and after a certain point, he doesn't even really know how to issue any orders because he's, he's lost the ability to mm. think. And I think right. we're in a similar situation right now with the prison and the Ivy League students. I think, I think that there may similar, be a balance, though. though. They're, they're similar in the sense that in prison, to get protection, you have to become <laughs> a prag. You have to sell yourself. But in Ivy League, you, to become a, like a upper-middle-class striver, you also have to become like an intellectual prag, and you have to, uh, mm. you know, clean it up and become a sweet pea for uh, Vern Schillinger. <laughs> Sorry, I've been watching, I've been binging the show Oz lately, and so I've been that's binge, all And my... I've been binging uh, Sopranos. I'm up yeah, to uh, season well, that, four right now. It's like you have to become a prison prag of the mind in order to get ahead in academia mm. nowadays. A so, actually, it oh would be God, pretty interesting. If we, look at, if we look at the conditions of the prisoners, they are kind of like what I described Napoleon's condition being, like a young Napoleon going to military school, sleeping in the straw mattress, you know, on a metal bed See, the philosopher kings will come from the federal penitentiary yes, and when exactly. society collapses and they empty out the prisons that's their plan but <laughs> yeah i know discipline and punishment i know um that's their plan when they mm. release the prisoners when shit hits the fan you're going to have tyrannical <laughs> philosopher kings that have read um thucydides and machiavelli yeah. and and Man, that in would prison. be a great that would be a great series by the way but uh anyway i oh, want yes, to uh <laughs> I want to, I want to go back to uh to the thing we were talking about earlier regarding the education of the elites where fine the Ivy Leagues they're not they're not uh, cutting it but was there an emphasis on this more Spartan education mixed in with uh you know high level philosophy back in the day or is that an illusion that I just concocted <laughs> Excuse me um I think that the model of education in philosophy for not only the future, but even for the present moment is not really to be found in an institution in the sense we, we think of right now, where you, um, you, you go off to this campus across the country and you pay for four years of tuition, room and board, things like that. We, we have this understanding it's supposed to be an institution of that kind. Um, I think that the, the kind of institution which um, actually could provide that sort of education is actually more like a fundamentalist Protestant church because say where I'm from in Southern Colorado, you, you had this um, ability for anyone to start their own church. And 
I remember, you know, just being invited when I was in high school to um, church in the park. There was some guy who decided he didn't have money to rent a building, but he still wanted to, you know, invite a few people to meet him at the park and, you know, study this particular section of the Bible. And he would ask for small donations each week, which people would give as much as they wanted to, as much as they could, et cetera. And then they'd agree to meet the next week. And slowly that guy built up um, to having at least, you know, some sort of um, commercial real estate space being rented out. Um, I think before it was, uh, you know, like a, a bar or something like that, but he turned it into a church. And I think that that's the model of um, philosophy you have to have right now. And that's basically what I am doing right now with um, with right. the Patreon thing. <laughs> you know, people can come to the, the school for Bintex if they, if they want, okay, there's no coercion here and they can give as much as they feel like, whether that be $2 a month, $5 a month, whatever. And we just sort of pull resources, invest time. And we try to get something out of the experience on an intellectual level. I'm not promising you can get a job or anything like that with this degree, but then again, that's not really the point anyway of doing philosophy, I think. And it is patreon.com slash Chad A. Hag. That's C-H-A-D-A-H-A-A-G. This is for all the audio listeners because we are on Spotify. We are on Apple. We are everywhere, baby. But yes, I am actually a patron of yours, Chad. And I got to say, I am loving your content so much. There is so much like this is I know that we may be a little bit pessimistic about what's going on in the future. But let's say for the near future, if I had a son or daughter I would definitely recommend them to just uh, pay their Patreon dues. I'm not going to give them mine. Like, they're going to have to earn their allowance and then use it's that funny. allowance to pay for you. It's and funny then, because, yeah. chat, there's only, like, a few people I can think of that do um, real philosophy, real explainers, a very complicated text well on YouTube. Because the ones that even do it well, they're kind of like bread tube, like soy bug men mm. that I don't want to support. But you and John David Ebert are the two mm. that, uh, I mean, there's other ones. Corey Anton is another J one. John um, David Siskel is another one. Yeah, like there's other people um, that I can think of. Uh, but, but the vast majority of them are kind of like, just grifters like school of life type of weird mm. like well school of life is worse because that's like weird cultism mm. mixed what, it's like this humanist what about, cult what about Kurt, what about kurt gray i can't say oh, the name God. what is oh, that kurt skigard or whatever that that is like <laughs> if you want to talk about reddit nihilism that that youtube channel is reddit nihilism. like well that's another thing i wanted to just before we go um <laughs> Simon so had a BC for Maz. I have everything I need, love and sense. Oh God! Yeah, that was, can you show me my <laughs> when he was freaking out? He didn't get enough drugs. That was amazing during the riot. Um, oh man! So, I, but about um, well, the YouTube landscape is like that's who cares. But when it comes to we I'm care, my... subscribe, subscribe oh, no, right but I now. Mean, like a lot of these yes. different Fine. accounts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, it, it seems that um you come up to the limitations of what sort of these traditional institutions can give you, but have, um, I wanted to transition into what your thought is in terms of how, um, uh, as these institutions collapse, what do you think of like tribal identity among various like political groups? Like, do you see that there's going to be a trend towards, um, this like not just a decentralization of knowledge, but also um, a lot of like people are becoming quickly balkanized 
and especially under like as the managerial state becomes more and more voracious and more and more tyrannical and, and demands more and more of your life. <laughs> what do you think is going to happen? Do you think people are just going to snap and it's going to become like Weimar where like commies and fascists are like going to war out in the streets? Or do you think that people <laughs> um, that's even too optimistic in some ways? Um, <laughs> <laughs> although, although I'm not in support by the way of uh, the conclusions that let's say people may make when reading somebody like Hegel or even Vola or anybody like that, but again, I am in full support of actually reading them and finding out what the frustrations are of people who, uh, you know, come on BTR and uh, talk about this stuff. But anyway, Chad. <laughs> um, well, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I still have. There was a uh, there was a very bad summer cold going around the world. I've, <laughs> I've heard that that was going around America. Well, it made it its way to India, and even weeks later, you still have a slight cough. So I apologize for that. Um, but um, the question of the, the political future, if I understand correctly, uh, part of it, it cut out, uh, unfortunately. Um, but the, the, the political future of the United States, as Dmitry Orlov says, is there is none. There is no political future of the United States. Now, there is political yeah. future of various parts of the United States, but there's no way to keep this nation um, together in the long term, says people um, as intelligent as, uh, you know, John Michael Greer, Dmitry Orlov. Um, there was a uh, poll claiming that... Um, you know, well over one third of Americans support um, breaking the, the the nation up into smaller regional countries. Um, and that's not just in one particular region. That's kind of a consensus which is emerging in all the parts of the country. And I think that something like that is inevitable. Um, mm. The situation of the United States, though, is particularly bad because of its status as um, the center of a world empire. So if you read Cervantes, for example, there's all this talk in um, his um, Spain um, about, uh, you know, crime. You have many characters who are criminals, prostitutes. Um, you have depopulated areas where he's moving through where there's been sort of this, uh, they're almost like ghost towns. You have financial problems. Uh, Spain would routinely declare bankruptcy every 50 years or something, not after it had lost its imperial status, but precisely when it was a world empire. In fact, yeah. it only really started to turn around when it let go of its last empire, uh, its last colony, excuse me. And the reason for this is actually quite simple. If you're an imperial center, you demand tribute from overseas, which um, provides a surplus of wealth for the kleptocracy, which is politically connected, but it... Um, does structural damage to the rest of the economy. Um, you have this importing of wealth and um, materials um, from overseas through the imperial arrangement, which sort of forces it um, on a political level. Um, and this tribute floods into the economy and puts the, um, the working people in your own country out of work. Okay, You have unemployment, you have this need to find other ways to make your living. So we have, quite frankly, the prostitutes in... Um, um, Cervantes that you see very often and now we have the, um, the media saying that the only way to overcome uh, patriarchal misogyny is for every girl to get an account on OnlyFans. It's like the same thing, right? And we have this because <laughs> oh, um, because of the structural damage. It was precisely because it's so hard to find a legitimate job. So it's particularly bad in the United States and in the sense that here in India, I can still go down walking distance from this house and find a tailor who works with, you know, a pair of scissors, um, a sewing machine, etc. I can pay him a few dollars to um, stitch um, a piece of fabric into some clothing. Um, in the United States, you simply have 
cheap clothing imported from sweatshops in Bangladesh and Vietnam and Thailand flood into the country and you don't have anyone with the skill. Mm -hmm. So when the, when the tribute stops flowing into the country, you're going to be left with a nation that has grown used to an unsustainable arrangement and does not really have an alternative to replace it. You don't have the infrastructure in place or the skills to produce that stuff, which you were used to just bringing in from overseas. So I would dare to say that the situation in the United States is going to be even worse than it would be certainly somewhere like here in India. Mm. Mm. I do have a question about India though, but first, uh, and uh, I don't know how much time we have right now. I don't want to keep you for uh, longer. I mean, it is pretty late where I am right now as well, but this is such an amazing conversation with you. And I'm really happy yeah. that you're here. Uh, but uh, the question that I have first before uh, the India question is, what would you say would happen to the nukes? Because that's a big thing that I always bring up when it comes to the USA balkanizing. Well, who's going to have their hands on the nuclear stockpile? Like, what, what would that situation look like? <laughs> I can tell you that the long-term fate of this uh, nuclear infrastructure is uh, going to be um, simply environmental catastrophe. Um, in uh, Dark Age America, Greer mentions that the, the fate of um, political prisoners in the far future in North America is to be sent to the dead zones. Oh, <laughs> where God. There's nuclear... Yes. <laughs> so that's really the, the long-term inevitable um, effect of having these sites. And um, I don't think that that's avoidable. So mm. whatever happens in the short term with some nation getting nominal control over them, I think the long-term situation is still simply environmental catastrophe. Mm. It's kind of like uh, Tarkovsky's stalker where it's like you go into the dead zone and it's there, there's this one theory that mm. um, it's, it's almost like a weird um, like I, I call this like Reddit profundity, meaning that people who are of <coughs> the, like, <laughs> I know people who have the um, materialist, uh, new atheist, um, like I fucking love science persuasion. They find the sublime in the terror that humanity has directly caused. So for instance, in the nuclear, uh, waste stockpile, there's that inscription saying like to future generations, don't come near here. Don't even go down here. It's like going to like rip your DNA apart. Right. But to me, it's almost as if technology to them in a negative dystopian picture it to them at least i know it's to me no because you know to them it's almost as if it's a re-enchantment it's like that is the satanic force it is the well besides racism mm. is a satanic force to them but uh <laughs> to to them it's like mm. the horror of nuclear waste is like this weird uh demonic property it's this really crazy it's very similar to almost what young talked about with the ufo phenomenon being like a an archetypal manifestation that only moderns can understand i like what do you like and you talk about this in being an oil like about how the mythology of our day and age is so symbiotic with our technological production that even mythology itself becomes produced and so what do you think of that? Like the horror of like of me personally, I think like if the horror of nuclear nuclear waste is obviously real, but it's like, it's funny how they treat it as like this demonic force. It's, it's really interesting, <laughs> you know? <clears throat> well, one interesting thing, <clears throat> excuse me, about the 
nuclear dead zones is um, I remember um, back in 2008, I, I worked with a guy from the Ukraine here in the United States. And he told me that uh, Chernobyl is a place where you have heads or excuse me, you have cows with two heads. And he, mm. he was describing it as such a horrible place that um, even the animals there come out deformed or whatever. Um, but we found out now that that's actually not completely true. It's actually become more like a life zone. You have um, all of these wild animals which are able to thrive precisely yeah. because the humans have been taken out of the situation. So I, I do have a certain hope that one thing that might come of this in the long term is precisely that forced exclusion of humans from certain areas which will allow the animals you know to 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 have a comeback which quite frankly they deserve a lot more than we do <laughs> yeah it's interesting well when it comes to animals and nature and all that uh, good stuff what is the state this is going to be my india question what is the state uh, right now of the uh, ganges uh, river I'm not an expert on India by any means. I keep hearing things about the river having been uh, pretty polluted when it comes to the uh, dumping of dead bodies into the river as is, uh, I believe, a ceremonial custom. Again, I don't want to speak out of turn. This is just what I heard. So uh, would you say that when it comes to that kind of uh, pollution, that is also uh, going on to quite a big extent in India right now? And historically, has it also been going on to that extent? <clears throat> well, the um, the Ganges is very far away from where I live. That um, flows through northern India, and I live all the way on the southern tip. So mm. I can't speak from my own experience of, say, seeing the Ganges in real life. Um, but what I can tell you is that um, during the uh, Great Lockdown last year, I, I remember seeing reports that even just a little bit of time of humans polluting less the Ganges was already starting to look a lot better. So I think that I have to remain hopeful that in the long term, in the far future, a lot of the pollution that is going on is going to still be balanced out. Because like honestly, it's it, it really is just overpopulation. I agree with Link Law on that. Like you can you can talk about um, things like the the mismanagement of the river. Um, and um, various other things like that. But really, it's just overpopulation. The problem is that there's just too many humans on the earth right now. Mm. And that's what you see with um, Chernobyl also. The problem simply was the overpopulation. But that is the one thing which is mm. guaranteed not to be sustained mm. in the far future. I is there that... Are there any populations, though, that could be compared? I mean, obviously, India has a very big population of people. Is there anything that can be compared, though, like in terms of... Uh comparing one culture to another let's say if there is a city where there are a lot of people and sure you could say well they don't have the tailors and they uh, export a lot of these very basic things to uh, the third world and that is a problem i agree 100 percent with you on but when it still comes to there being like i don't know like i personally look at uh, despite all the problems that we talked about here i don't even want to use the word liberalism anymore i want to use the word civilization when we consider something to be like more civilized or less civilized, what are the factors we're looking at here? Like one factor would be not uh, burying one's uh, you know a, a dead body inside of a river that other people are going to drink from. Another one would be you know not causing other you know noxious things to 
not be, let's say, taken somewhere into the dump or disposed of in a sanitary manner. These would be things that I would look at as being higher-end civilization. And my question is, like, what is the state of those uh, practices when it comes to developing countries right now, when it comes to countries for who, uh, you know, agriculture has been the norm for a long time and all of a sudden you have technology introduced? Like, how much more prevalent is a lot of these uh, are a lot of these problems, not even because of just uh, too many people, although that plays a role, but also because it's people who have not been, you know, with this uh, new technology for that long of a time and may not be going about it in as proper of a way as they could have otherwise. <clears throat> um, I'll be honest with you that uh, some of that cut out, um, but if the question is whether um, the practices themselves should be replaced by better practices. Um, I think that the, the idea of the first world of the better alternative for something like say plastic um, in comparison with here in India, um, there is no garbage service, at least where I live. Like when I first came here, I was always asking, well, where's the trash cans? You know, I didn't see really any trash cans except in your hotel. If they know you're, you, um, they're serving foreigners, you'll see a trash can, but, um, there's really no trash cans otherwise. And um, I found out that that's because there's no garbage service and that's because there's no landfills, at least in my area. And dis disposing of the, the garbage is really your own responsibility. So the um, way that you do that really is you have to have a trash fire about once a week. I mean, there is some place maybe where you could take plastic to be recycled and then they can turn it into, um, you know, highway or something like that. But most people just... Um, they either burn it or, of course, littering is a very big problem. And um, a lot of uh, um, foreigners who uh, come to India see this practice and um, they, they, they wonder, as I did when I first came here, why can't you just have the garbage service? Well, the problem with that is even if you have garbage service, like in the United States, the, the, all of that pollution is still not actually going anywhere else. Um, mm. it's, out of, it's out of sight for the person who's throwing it away, but it still has to go someplace else. And what really happens, I think, is you have so much garbage concentrated in these landfills in the United States that all of the wasted food, which about 40% of all the food in the United States goes to the garbage, that doesn't simply disappear. It, it just feeds an enormous population of rats, okay? Whereas um, if you have to deal with it on an individual level, my food scraps um, go to the chickens who eat it, and then the chickens produce eggs, okay? Which is a much better, I think, arrangement so there's something to be said for um ha having to deal with things on an individual level in which you you can't get as much distance from the negative side effects okay if i don't dispose of this food properly i'll have problems with rats which are enough of a problem mm. already anyway i've i've had like two rats caught on in this land just like within the past week okay so even if you're trying your best you still have you know, uh, you still have the rats and things like that. But if you were doing it at the scale that the United States is doing it, um, in which there's more rats in New York than there are people. And that's <laughs> simply because there's so much food thrown into the garbage. It seems better, but at that mass scale, it's actually multiplying. It's making the problem exponentially larger, I think, precisely because, you know, some huge institution is taking care of it. Mm. Um, whereas if individuals... Mm -hmm. But the question for me is, uh, would 
there be health problems that you can historically look at when it comes to the kind of environments that a lot of uh, people in India uh, are living in. Because you're right, like... Uh, I wish it would be a mix of both, where you would have much more responsible people who would, let's say, have a little chicken coop and uh, feed all those extras to the chickens instead of throwing them away, while at the same time having a way to get rid of certain things that they're not going to be able to feed to the chickens. So uh, I'm just curious, like, when it does come to the health of the people who are living especially in the i think it's like the uh, dalits you know like all uh, like the uh very low caste oh, God, communities you there it, you said it no but isn't that oh, the uh, term it. no no well, what is Elots, it controver- yeah, that's the derogatory oh sorry i, I, <laughs> yeah, I didn't know it was derogatory i thought don't that worry was... about it's, it it's, don't sorry. worry about it <laughs> move on move on <laughs> no but i'm still gonna ask the question when right, it comes right. to uh the way that uh people are living there how much health problems are occurring because i understand what you're saying that it's kind of like a nimbyist you know out of sight out of mind type thing when it comes to pollution here in the states but people seem to get a lot i mean sure you could say birth control in the water and that's really horrible but people still seem to make themselves sick from all the junk that uh, people eat here in the states uh as opposed to there being certain pollutants contaminants uh just like in the air the more junk you eat the more it like causes more chemicals to be added in order to fix the problems that were created in the first place it's a horrible cycle (laughs) yes well i mean i can tell you that i actually became more healthy after relocating to a so-called third world village according to the un the state in india with the fewest um percentage of people with access to, to quote unquote clean drinking water is my own state of Kerala. What they don't tell you is that what that really means is that those people get um, water from a well on their own land, which it kind of is the norm here. Okay. And the irony is I, I used to um, worry about the, the drinking water in India. You know, I've heard things like, um, you yeah. know, ab- ab- about that as you know, you see these images of uh, people mass open defecating into a river yeah. and then somebody else comes along and drinks straight out of the same river. You think that that's the norm. Um, but the irony is I, I, I um, lived in India for a bit. Then I went back to America and I tried to drink the same water I drank for years. And that's what made me sick because my mm-hmm. body had gotten so used to natural water that all of the weird chemicals, which I don't even know what they might be, but I can tell you the, the water coming from the, um, the system in the United States was actually worse for me than the water from my own well. Wow. But I guess it's a matter of that particular well that you have being well taken care of and not contaminated. And I could be wrong about this, but it almost seems like India is a land of extremes where on one hand you would have places that would be absolutely clean and pristine and people take care of them really well. And then other places that for whichever reason happen to be contaminated and people just live in this horrible environment. Would that be a fair uh, estimate? I mean, there there are, certainly are cases where um, you have pollution um, going on at an unacceptable level and affecting people's health, but I personally haven't seen it myself. <clears throat> what I have seen and experienced was that my own health got better. And ironically enough, I, I became much more healthy after um, I had um, some um, cases of... Uh, fairly bad food poisoning, ironically enough. <clears throat> it actually made me more healthy. <clears throat> Sorry, the, uh, the cough is still there for a little bit after the few weeks. Um, so I actually became more healthy after I got the food poisoning from eating, you know, 
you know, mm-hmm. some spoiled goat at a restaurant, for example, um, because my immune system had been so um, spoiled. Would that be the right so word? Spoiled, well, right. It had been so understimulated by living in um, unnaturally sanitized conditions in the United States mm-hmm. that it had to be given a little push to go back to almost like what would be the norm without this sort of intrusion of technology. It's like people, yeah, it's like um, dermatologists that say that no case should you ever go out in the sun, ever. You should always wear sunscreen, even in the winter. Mm. Like, it's insanity. It's like, I mean, I I worry about skin cancer like the next guy, but it's like, that's... But I I think this talks about the... uh, I think this is absolutely connected to everything we've been discussing today. Because if we don't have this amount of pressure that is put on people in such a way that they could grow from that. Not enough to, you know, not like an elephant, you know, stomping its foot down and crushing you, but enough pressure so that you can grow from that pressure and you could become better than just uh, deteriorating over time. At least that's something that I find in my life. Like, I always try to improve myself when I see there being moments of uh, weakness or whatever. And I think that every... I think all these various religions and practices that we had, they did encourage that. But the one thing I still, uh, okay, I'm not going to talk about, you know, wife beating, all that kind of stuff. Geo's had oh, enough. God. Geo's had enough of me talking about that. But it still goes back to, I don't know what things were like in the past. India may be as close as going into the past can get for many people. So I'm curious when it comes to, and this is kind of like the wrapping it up uh, part, but uh, I'm curious when it comes to the familial relations. My thought process is, again, I may be biased because of the experience that my ancestors have had in Russia, yada, 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 all the chat people know what I'm talking about. But, you know, this general kind of like, almost like an animal-like nature that people end up adopting uh, when they're just in these small little towns and then end up, you know, like molestation and horrible things going on behind the scenes. And I don't want to take the rosy idea of a traditional society with certain natural hierarchies and things to look up to as being negative. But I kind of want to balance that out by what exactly was the truth and still is the truth of how a lot of people are living in the, these more, let's say, natural, hierarchical, uh, whatever you want to call it, environments. So, uh, Chad, if you have had experiences here with uh, uh, the local people that you've gotten to know, uh, let me know what your perspective is on this. <clears throat> so if the question is about, say, the extended family as something which, you know, in India, um, it's kind of the norm for extended family to, to live in one house. And when you actually do that, you ask, you start to ask, well, why wouldn't you do that? It's more efficient to right. uh, cook meals for that many people. Um, it's, it's better to, you can divide the labor up, quite frankly. Um, the only reason everybody has to have their own apartment um, in the United States is quite frankly, because that's a way to make more money for whoever's making money off of that arrangement. Yes. And mm. I mean, it's really, for me, it's, it's just as simple as that. You, you had to have been convinced by corporate marketers who use black magic to convince you to spend money you don't have on stupid shit you don't even want, and that won't yeah. make you happy. And this arrangement is one of those things. And absolutely. I think that family is incredibly important. Like, uh, I mean, yeah, Gio, you're, that... you're Italian. And right. uh, I, uh, you know, my mom is Jewish, my dad's Russian. So I think that what unites us together, uh, the... Uh. Uh, 
the uh, Star of David and white. the uh, That's fa Fascia Alliance is oh, that God. Uh, is that we value having people around us that we can trust and that trust us. And there is something to that that I think, like, especially like with an extended family, it's a beautiful thing. The only reason why I'm pushing against certain parts of this, Chad, it doesn't have anything to do with the extended family as it is. It has more to do with what would you say is the level of education, not in the sense of being a bookworm, but in the sense of understanding that it's wrong to hit your wife in the sense of, you know, like that kind of stuff, which has happened throughout history. And, it's in uh, the Bible. Communities. I don't know what you're talking about. So Chad, like when it comes to that part, like where oh, would you, you just say, skipped right over that love. I can't where would you say people, <laughs> uh, where would you say people are when it comes to the uh, locals that you've met uh, in India who are, let's say more traditional based. <laughs> uh, well, I'll be honest with you, some of that cut out, but if you're asking about um, domestic abuse being yes. something perhaps um, correlated with the lack of education, um, I don't know about that because, you know, in my own life, I'm not naming any names, but I've personally known like literal scientists who make a salary doing scientific research who um, are also, you know, domestic abusers. So I don't think really that it's quite as simple as that. I think yeah. ultimately it comes down to the kind of person that you are and education might, I don't know, it might show you another way, but if, if you're already a certain kind of person, you're just going to be that way, I think. Well, I'll give you one last example, and I'm sorry to keep uh, you here uh, longer, but you are an amazing uh, speaker, and I'm really appreciative of you being here. Last example I would give with just uh, my family's experience or, you know, like uh, from my dad's side, uh, well, actually, my dad's side had part serf and part were Ukrainians who were never serfs to begin with. But the general idea here is that in Russia, you have you've had a lot of these serfs who are under the thumb of the Mongols and then were under the thumb of the Tsars. And uh, I remember before you were saying that people who are in these prison like conditions that uh, they could develop uh, kind of uh, willpower. I would argue, though, that in the case of the Russian serfs, when you had the Decemberist uh, revolt, uh, that uh, Pushkin originally wanted to write about before writing War and Peace. The Decemberists who were uh, from the nobility, they, and again, this is like hearsay, whatever, but they were able to withstand a lot of the harsh conditions that came with being exiled because they had a kind of like a, um, uh, like you can do it attitude when it came to what their family passed on to them as opposed to the serfs who were already in this very miserable state that they were much, you know, even though you would have thought that they were a lot hardier, they were the ones who succumbed to pressure much more easily because they were always kind of having to kiss somebody else's boot. So when it came to the kind of people that uh, ended up uh, coming from all of those uh, pressures of being under the Mongols and so on and so forth... I see them acting much more animal-like. And I think that the Soviet Union experiment in Russia has also uh, uh, proven that to be the case, that that is not the kind of state that I want people to be in. And what I, what I want to see is how can we balance out having a great extended family, which I am absolutely for, having traditional things that give people a reason to live while at the same time not 
putting people into this very animal-like state of, uh, again, you know, like getting drunk all the time, beating up their kids, beating up their wife, all that, all that, all those bad elements. Like, how can we balance this up? Mm. Uh, it's a very, um, it's a very difficult um, problem, I think, to think of a solution for, um, which is basically how can a society um, better itself and avoid the the vices which you know in a certain sense are actually kind of in human nature like um yeah you know the yeah i mean it is the natural thing to to lose your temper and to lash out it takes a certain level of repression to not do that so how exactly do you get that you know we have the idea of well we just have to educate everybody well we've never been more educated i think and um i, I haven't seen the the fruits of of that being positive um so it's not it's not just as simple as education um you might say well it's tradition um you might say it's religion um i i really don't know but what i can tell you is that even if one does not realize it one's um ability to deal with the difficulty of human life inherently has to be rooted in some sort of um some sort of almost religious ideal of how thing how things are going to right. get better and that's exactly what progress is giving us right but um i think it's uh it's going to have to be replaced by something else i think like to disprove what love is saying i think that um when it comes to like this picture that uh it's funny there was this tweet that went viral about some like i don't know which clothing store in the mall like one of these big you know mall like women's clothing stores had a whole row of like uh trad like trad wojak dresses like the trad, trad oh thought. yeah i remember those yeah. yeah and and all of a sudden you had people like this is like in Texas, you know, this is like Gilead, like instead of knowing, seeing that it's like basically no, this is like that book, Handmaiden's Tale. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of seeing it's like a Instagram, like cottage core trad thought LARP. Right. So the response, the gutter response reveals it's kind of like when people voted the for the liberals again here in Canada, because they have this idea that a traditional society means that uh, my precious sacred abortion is not going to happen and that, you know, my husband gets to beat me and shit. They don't realize that, okay, first of all, domestic violence hasn't changed one bit in terms of mass secularization or urbanization. In fact, in some cases, it's gotten worse in certain big cities. And also, I would say that um, there was always chivalry laws. But even besides that, the problem is when you start to place these sort of like progressive edicts upon tradition, like even just living in a more traditional like uh, household with an extended family, not like the nuclear family. It's, it's really interesting how people react because when you say that, well, it's going to limit my human freedom, then that itself is another like mystification or abstraction. But also I would say that when it comes to, uh, what happens is it's very similar to what Derek Jensen was saying about how abuse becomes more complex and second order and ameliorated and it becomes hidden. So for instance, we can't, uh, we can legislate away overt like wife beating for instance, but now abuse comes in like more like woke progressive packaging. Now it becomes like you can't kink shame, right? 
Like you can do sex work, OnlyFans. <laughs> you can become, you know, BDSM. It's like you can fetishize your pathological need to abuse women, but now it's woke and now it's king culture. Now it's subversive <laughs> because Marcuse bought us the idea that, you know, if we, if we just like have enough sex, then capitalism will be destroyed or some shit like that. It's like whatever, whatever <laughs> yeah. yellow girl. Well, believes those are, just, well, those are also yeah. definitely, those are also extremes. What I'm well, talking yeah, about, what, what I'm talking yeah. about when it comes to the level that the people are in right now, I don't think this is the level of people that either you, Gio, or you, Chad, would want to hang around. Like, we're talking with people who are just completely in a drunken stupor most of the time, and they're still around, believe me. Like, in uh, Brooklyn here, like, around Brighton Beach, there's there's definitely people who are like that. So, when it comes to that kind of mentality that I think they've inherited over the generations onwards from being, like, this uh, surf class, and again, it did, doesn't mean that there wouldn't be brilliant people that come out from there. Well, like, monkeys uh, only like masturbate Anton, in captivity. Love, Anton, uh, so. Anton Chekhov, for example. <laughs> Anton Chekhov's uh, family were serfs, and he was an absolutely brilliant writer so it does not mean at all that there wouldn't be brilliant people coming out from those conditions but at the same time it's like if there were conditions that created this kind of like animal-like lack of self-control that is i think far beyond whatever let's say ideals i hope people in the middle ages in europe were able to live up to like if it's so far lower down that neither of us would ever want to have these people in our homes then that's what i want to avoid just so i'm being yeah. clear about what exactly i'm talking about here well matches i wonder why that's true that statistic i wonder could it could it be because they're never mind i'm not gonna... <laughs> all right well finally in okay. britain i wonder what demographic of people they're bringing in in britain to make that statistic true matches i wonder <laughs> But, uh, well, we are we are coming to the end of the stream. My final question uh, for you, Chad, is a book recommendation question. So, right now I'm uh, reading. Uh, I, I am reading Aristotle. I've started reading Categories. It's not that interesting, but at the same time, I was told by Small Follower, shout out to Small Follower, that it is important I start from Categories. What is your advice when it comes to uh, starting Aristotle? Would there be a particular reading order? <laughs> um, I can tell you from my own experience that uh, when I was um, taking kind of an introduction to philosophy course in undergrad years ago, we did read Aristotle, but uh, we did not read the categories. We read, if I remember correctly, I think we read the Nicomachean Ethics first, yeah. and then we read uh, De Anima afterwards, or the, the order might have been reversed, but it was definitely those two books. And um, I think that that's a very a good pair of um, texts to read together. When I was, um, I did a uh, introduction to philosophy lecture series for University of Kerala last month. Um, they've released the first one on ancient philosophy. It's that also was great. those I two texts. I saw that one, yeah. Thanks. Yeah. And the uh, the other ones have been recorded and edited. They'll be released. There's just a lot of they have, um, I guess, a system in which um, you have to wait your turn to be released. And um, mm. all these series were recorded on Onam week, which is the biggest holiday of the year here in India. That's just when everyone was off work. They were able to do this recording. So we have a, we have a, a huge number of lectures right now that, um, you know, are in line to be released. So um, sometime within the near future, the medieval philosophy and German idealism, existentialism, uh, phenomenology will be released. But, it, um, but at Ooh, any rate, nice. the, the, the uh, um, lecture on ancient philosophy, I basically did the same thing. I talked about the Nicomachean ethics and Dan Animan. Um, 
as maybe kind of the big picture, a very, very subtle, if I may, if I dare say that, um, the categories as important as that is, that's giving you kind of um, a, a way of understanding Aristotle's um, approach to say logic, etc., which is incredibly important. But I think that his emphasis on living the ethical life as the particular kind of being which a human is, which we can understand specifically as this combination of factors of soul in contrast with those of animals, plants, etc., I mean, I, I have my own, you know, um, prejudices with regard to Aristotle, but I, if, if I were to um, recommend a place to start, I would probably agree with um, the professor who initiated me into philosophy years ago, and I would probably emphasize those two texts. Will do. And uh, I think that pretty much, Gia, do you have any final questions? It would just be too long, something about Heidegger, but it... it um... <laughs> Yeah, it, we have to get you on again, Chad. That this has oh, been absolutely. one of our greatest streams. Um, well, I, I have an idea yeah. for a stream, although it may require. I don't know, Chad, if there are any days up ahead that you would be able to come in, uh, not in the morning, but uh, later on in the, uh, you know, kind of like in the late afternoon, uh, evening. Because who I would love to bring you with would be Alexander Bard. I think that would be. I think that would be a killer stream. Oh man, that'd be a That'd be chaos. <laughs> so there we go. Chad, thank you so much for being here. Patreon.com. Once again, patreon.com slash Chad A. Hag. H-A-A-G. By the way, what what is the origin of that name? Is it, uh, I don't know. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. It was uh, cutting out a little bit. Did you ask what was the origin of the name Chad A. Hag? Yes. Okay, so... Um, I actually, um, I'm not Chad. Okay, I, my my legal name is something else, mm. um, which you know nobody nobody except the American Embassy um, here in Chennai really needs to know what my legal name is. Um, <laughs> but so Chad was actually not my name. I, I started a the, the original channel. I think I mentioned already was called the the Anime Lit Theorist, um, and the second channel was called Chad African. I, it was originally not supposed to be a public channel. It was simply supposed to be a way to store playlists of music and about two months after i already had this channel i started uploading videos um, without really thinking about what the name was and it, um, it was a reference to the nation of chad um, and people started thinking it was my name they'd say hey chad can you you know read my paper or something like that um, so when i came back to youtube in 2018 i i called myself chad a a for african hague um, so, you know, it's interesting that, I mean, the name could have been anything, you know, it could have been some other country. I was interested yeah. in that time at, um, you know, subsistence farming nations. That was really the only reason I was interested in studying a little bit about Chad at that time was what would life be in a subsistence farming society? Um, although I admit, I know next to nothing about the nation, um, but it could have been any place. I mean, I, I could have named it after some remote island or something like that. Um, so it's interesting that I just happened to choose a nation, which is also the, a proper name of a person. Um, but mm. not, not just know, the proper I mean, name of a person, but it's a meme. That's the other part. <laughs> well, that go. sort of happened after I left YouTube. Nobody left comments about that connection when I was first Chad back in 2012, 2013. Yeah. It was only after I came back in 2018 that that became a thing. Hmm. There was only a few of you like doing serious philosophy work. Like there was you, Corey Anton, there's um, Matthew Siegel, 
although I've had my disagreements with uh, Thou Art That, but um, <laughs> uh, it would be interesting to get him on the show. I wanted, I, I was going, I wanted to do this dream thing where he debated Keith Woods because he had this video against Keith Woods. But uh, no, this has been amazing. You have to come back. I mean, I, I, I can't even imagine. I mean, the two diametrically opposed people. Alexander Bard and like Chad Af- I can't. That's what it's all about. And look, yeah. <laughs> both of you guys are absolute gents. So I think it's going to go swimmingly. Okay, that's what BTR is about. So guys, thank you so much for watching. Listen, we bring you this great content. BTR is able to unleash this content upon you. And the only way that BTR is going to keep doing this is if you support us. We have a good thing going with Patreon right now, but we definitely need your support. The Brittany Venti Moth, if you are a fan of the Vents, if you've got the uh, Vents for Vents, get this Brittany Venti Moth right now, okay? $20 patrons are going to get a beautiful wooden sculpture created by my father, Alexander Polyakov, who is also working on a very interesting Styx Hexenhammer 666 sculpture in oh, honor man. of his appearance with uh, Joel Davis. That is coming up uh, early October, so be on the lookout for that. $5 patrons are going to get a, um, a top-secret streams for Patreon patrons only. Patreon patrons can participate in the streams, and we are going to be doing those real soon. Just give us a little bit of time right now and you are also going to get access to our discord server which by the way if you guys are not part of our discord i don't know what you're doing become part of our discord today here is the link i am posting it in the chat right now and 30 dollars patrons are going to get a beautiful print from giovanni penichetti here is the process of making the print you can see it in action right here right now from the tfw no gf series and By the way, I yes. love how the trolls from leftist irony Twitter said that my artwork was shit because I do memes. I did that in fucking 2017 when uh, when a certain someone released a certain film called That Feel One No GF. But uh, no, I just love how they pointed that one out as like, yeah, this guy makes fucking meme art. That's like. There you go. But anyway, no, sorry. Go no, Geo makes Geo. <laughs> you make beautiful art, and uh, I am so happy that at least we get to create art in this technocratic future that we're in right now. And uh, speaking of creating art in a technocratic future, I am going to be releasing my Muscles NFT. I hope it's going to be released this week. I am not sure. It is getting done. A lot of things are happening right now. But if you want to support me, you can first of all follow me on Twitter, twitter.com slash levpo, L-E-V-P-O. And of course, follow Geo on Twitter, twitter.com slash giant zero and my giant youtube Geo, channel giant YouTube productions youtube.com slash giant art productions i just right released here. a ramp video on uh the recent election so yeah excellent and go to superrare.com slash left buy my fucking nfts okay 
do it right now. You're not going to regret it. I've got a lot of good stuff in here, and I'm going to get a lot more stuff in the NFT department coming up. Right now, there is a bottleneck with this Muscles piece because it has a lot of different pieces inside of it, which are going to be their own artwork coming down the pipe soon. But anyway, guys, you know you, you know what we're talking about here. Become a patron right now. Okay, what are you waiting for? It's 12, oh, it's 12 a.m. right now for me here, but I couldn't be more energized and pumped from having somebody like Chad Haig here on BTR, wonderful speaker, wonderful scholar. Uh, please become a patron of his and become a patron of BTR. We really appreciate it. Anyway, guys, take care. God bless and goodbye.